Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Welcome to Risky Conversations. I'm your host, Ace Deliri. We're going to discuss risky finance today. And with us, we have our guest, Paul Portesi, who is going to give us his intro and explanation into the world of finance and how we got here. So, Ace, how you doing? Great. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I think it's really important for people to share their process and how they do things. And I think it's important to kind of look back in time if we can and talk to people that have kind of experienced either one thing or another and see, hey, how did you do it? What did you see? What what did you think about? So my my first foray into to, to finance and, and in particular trading was um, my senior year at Fresno State. I took a retail marketing class. Uh, I was a marketing major and the the the, uh, the my topic was 7-Eleven, and, and at the time they were doing an LBO, which is a leverage buyout, and I was interested in that because I, I was like, well, what is an LBO, and you know, how does that apply to to the marketing side of things and the finance? And so I ended up diving more into the finance side than I did into the into the marketing side, and I came across uh, you know high yield bonds, uh, junk bonds. Um, you know, equity swaps, things of that nature, and I and I started thinking, well, what what is that all about? And then I came across a guy by the name of Michael Milken, who was at the at the time the junk bond king, and I had read in a book called Predators Ball where he made five hundred fifty million dollars, and I said that's what I want to do. So from that point on, I was always fascinated with trying to make a lot of money. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all think in our society, and especially when I was growing up, was Hey, if you want to, uh, to 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 mark yourself as successful, uh, you want to make a lot of money. So I, I was no different. So I went ahead and went down that road and tried to get onto some trading desk in San Francisco. I tried in New York, was unable to, uh, for one reason or another. It was just a very difficult environment to to get on unless you you came from the right pedigree, which was basically Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the Ivy League schools. Uh, wouldn't give you a, a shout to to join their program. So uh, I tortured the guys back in San Francisco to get on their trading desk, uh, made call after call, spent about a year doing that, uh, had a regular job and just kept hammering. Um, and at the time I had a, I had, I had gotten my license to uh, for you know the series 763. So I was licensed, but I just couldn't get on the desk. And then finally I caught a break with, a guy at a small firm who liked athletes, and I was a former ex-athlete. Uh, I played football in college and wrestled a little bit. So um, he let me come aboard, and within nine months I was fired uh, for one reason or another. Uh, that's another story. And uh, ended up kind of bouncing back and forth, trying to get on a desk. Ended up with Lehman for about a year. They closed their desk. And uh, then at Bank of America, uh, but it was more of a – customer service job. And then I ended up at, at a firm called Hamburg and Quist, which was an investment banking firm that was doing a ton of IPO business. And then from there, I, uh, I hooked up with a couple traders uh, where they showed me how to trade big positions. And then from there, 
uh, five years later, the IPO craze took off and, you know, I, I ended up kind of elevated in an elevated position, senior position because of uh, what I call the game of attrition. Most of the time in either sports or uh, the investment community, you don't get necessarily promoted because you're the smartest guy or the best guy in the classroom. You get, you get promoted because you're the last man standing. And, 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 and in my own way, I was the last man standing. You got to navigate the political uh, stuff that goes on at that level. And, and I was able to do that and uh, ended up trading uh, until 2002 when J.P. Morgan um, merged with Chase, who acquired Hamburg and Quist, and they moved the desk back to uh, New York. They asked me to go, chose not to. Uh, I had a family at the time, and I had made a couple bucks, and I, was, I weighed the pros and cons and just decided that New York w- It probably would have been a better move to do that, but I, I chose not to. Stayed here, spent five years with a firm called First Albany. Uh, they closed their desk. Then it went back to, uh, then I went to Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo merged with Wachovia. They closed their desk, and then I ended up with a uh, private equity firm. So I've kind of had this natural transition from, 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 a, from a, you know, capital commitment position trader to a, you know, execution trader. And, you know, the people always ask me, hey, how come you don't trade anymore? And, and, and the reality is very simple. It, it's just too tough. It's you're you're playing against the machines. Uh, I'm more of a poker guy. You know, I I would I would be more of a guy that would go to Vegas and play poker against somebody versus playing against the machines. You're going to play against the machines. You're going to lose. It's just that simple. So I, I kind of folded up my stuff and realized that the times had passed me by, and and that and and that's why I ended up in the private equity private equity side of things. I see. All right. Well, fascinating uh, experience you're bringing to the table. So what I would like to do in this particular instance is just kind of bring everybody up to speed with it. Because the question is, we, when we see traders on TV, it's almost always a, a bunch of guys yelling at some pit. And we have no idea. First of all, how do you get a job? What do you do on a day-to-day basis when you work at one of these firms? Do you have to bring your own money in? Are you betting your own money to start with? Or did the firm, does the firm back you for a certain amount? What happens if you lose that money? Are you paying it out of your paycheck? How do they pay you? Is it straight commission? Is it, are you on a salary plus a bonus? Like, where, where does all this stuff go? Because uh, for the life of me, and I know a lot of people, and a lot of people trade stocks, you know, just for fun on the side, but nobody really has any ideas. So can you enlighten us and let us know, how does that even begin? Like, what's the procedure? Once you get that job, where, do, where does it start? So then we can take it from there. Yeah, so well, the stuff that you saw on TV is what they call the centralized system in, in trading, which was the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange. You always had to go to an exchange to um, to do a transaction, um, it was just it was just the way they did it back in the the, the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, and even all the way back to the Depression era. That's what most people are familiar with. In the 1970s, uh, they decided to come up with a an electronic system where instead of being centrally located, you basically did transactions on on the computer. And so you would update your, your quote machine. And at the time I didn't know what it was, but it, they called it a bunk rama And basically what it was, was you would have to type in your quote and then hit the enter button and then hit refresh. And it was this very archaic system. Obviously that eventually transitioned into a more electronic process. And eventually it came to be where it was just a software program. And what, what would happen would be in, in my particular case, since I was a market maker, 
I committed capital for the firm that I was working with. The things that you've mentioned are also also types of traders that you can do. So you can go buy buy yourself a seat on the floor or an exchange and then trade from there. So there is basically kind of multiple ways to become a trader. You can bring your own money and just trade on your own, which is a lot easier now because of the platforms. You can do a centrally located system, i.e. the New York or American Stock Exchange, but those have now morphed into basically uh, just another dealer on the machine. So when, when, when I look at a machine or a quote, a quote monitor, I'll see all the uh, investment banks on one side and then I'll see on, on both sides and on, on both the bid and the offer. And so what will happen would be you would actually do a transaction based off of uh, your, your, your firm or the way you traded. So for me, I was a dealer and or a trader for the firm. So my capital was basically the firm's capital. I traded on behalf of the firm. There are other position traders, i.e. proprietary traders, that um, take positions on behalf of themselves, and they also take positions on behalf of a fund, and that's where like a hedge fund or something along those lines. So there's all different types. When people say trader, it applies to all different types of traders. Uh, I, I think that that that's where people get confused because they think of the New York Stock Exchange, they're like, everything's traded there. And the reality is not much actually trades there anymore. It's all traded off, off the, you know, off the central location. It's all traded what they call upstairs, which is on the machines. Okay. I see. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. So the question I have for you now is how does the payment process work? So do you get like a cut of the profits you make for the firm or like where, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out the incentives, right? Like what is the incentive of the trader and how it lines up with this incentive of the firm against how it lines up with the overall market? Because we're going to get into society general and we're going to realize how that one rogue trader decided to go, uh, you know, off the uh, reservation, so to speak. And we want to know how does that happen? Like where, like, because the average person, when you ask them, you know, in 2008, how did the financial markets just collapse? And nobody sees it coming. It's because it's such an opaque process, right? We really don't know the day-to-day -day basis of, of there, there are people who clearly see that, hey, there's some wrong bets being made. There are people who look at it and say, how come all the banks uh, that used to be bankers are now actually trading? So how did that happen? And then the other question people have is, how does, some, uh, how does a bank like Goldman Sachs separate itself from the, from the rest of the, uh, the crew in the sense that they seem to constantly survive these massive instances of, of, of pure failure? So if you can just sort of enlighten us into that process, that I think would be very appreciated. Yeah, so there, there are different types of traders. Like I said, myself, for me, I was more of a dealer trader. My incentive package was basically a salary, which was relatively low, and then a big portion of my bonus. Now that, that, that grew, and everybody gets mad at this word, but it, it grew multiplicatively in the, in the, in the 90s. It, it, it accelerated quite quite quickly. I mean, we talk about convexity and, and I was exposed to a lot of convexity when it came to payment back in those days because, you know, nobody saw that IPO uh, explosion happening, right? You, you know, companies started coming coming into play and, and, and next thing you know, the investment banking and then somebody had to trade those. So they needed basically somebody to represent uh, the transactions in the box, meaning represent for the firm. If you bring a, a, a company public, you have to you have to basically make a market in that stock 
and, and do and, and do transactions and buy and sell securities uh, based off of that. I think where most people kind of get confused is there's basically two types of traders when it comes to like the banks. There's the proprietary traders, which they they trade the, the firm gives them a a, a a chunk of money and says, hey, go go make more because you seem to be really good at that. And then there are dealer traders, which is what I was more of. I was more of a dealer trader where I did transactions based off of a, a list of stocks that I had that I I, I did transactions in. I, I think the best analogy would be, hey, when you need to go buy a uh, a Lexus, do you go to uh, you know do you go to a Honda dealership? And the answer is no. You 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 go to a Lexus dealership. Well, if you wanted to buy a stock that we trafficked we trafficked in. Uh, you would have to basically choose one of the people that made markets in those stocks because that was the way that you the, you felt like you got the best information with that. I the, see. The, so, the, so, 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 to, to oh. jump in real quick, so let's just look at it right now. I'm I'm Uber or I'm Pinterest or one of these these guys, and I I want to make a market to sell my 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 particular shares. So, right. uh, so I would come to you and say, hey, Paul, for the firm that you represent, uh, we would like to go public. Can yep. you make a market first? So is that is that what you mean by the the dealer side of things, where you're actually that, like, okay, we'll we'll go and set this up for you? That's exactly right. So they they put together a book and they bring the company public and then we trade the stock. Okay, that's, perfect. That's so the, very simple. Okay, so the question is this, right? So like I'm just speaking to you from the point of view of the actual person on the day to day basis who has no idea what's going on. So walk us through the process. You're a company like Uber. When you go to public, first of all, why are you going? Why why do you need to do an IPO besides you know uh, getting all the early VCs some cash in their pocket? Um, what what do you need to go to uh, public for? What's the process like? And once you're public, what changes within the dynamics of the company? Well, let's not. Well, we'll, we'll how about we use? We'll, we'll, we can use Uber, but Uber is kind of an extreme case. We'll just say we'll just use like a Mentor Graphics. We'll use a company that was night in two thousand. Let's okay. say Mentor Graphics is a small, small, a small company that needs to raise capital because they want to grow, right? Let's say they make some software that everybody seems to, you know, want and or need or and or desire, and the only way that they can do that is they need more capital. So they go to an investment banking firm, they talk to a banker, and they say, "Hey, this is what we've done the past three or four years, or the past two years, or whatever the number is," and they show them their financials, and the and the bank says, "Yeah, we we'd like to do a deal." And so if you're if you're big enough, if you've got a, a good enough name, you're going to get in competition with other bankers. So you're going to see the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs, uh, the, you know, uh, the Hamburg and Quist, right? You're going to see those guys and you're going to go talk to all of them. And you're going to say, who is going to do the best job for the firm? Or I mean, for the company that, that I, that's going to become, that's going to go public and who's also going to represent the stock once we we bring the company public because that was always the big thing was they wanted people to write research reports so people so the institutional clientele would come and buy the stock at some point you know either on the deal or after the deal and and the only way you can do that is you you need some type of representation and the representation comes from uh the analyst writing a report that's why sometimes you read stuff you you don't read it as much anymore but back in the day it was you know, Hamburg and Chris comes out positive on uh, on mentor graphics or something like that. And so the stock might rise and we might catch buyers because of it. And and that th that kind of gets the name out there. And and, and it's and it's this feedback loop process that goes on, uh, you know, in, in the banking industry. 
The Uber deal is a little bit more difficult because Uber basically gets to pick and choose. Most of the time, it's not the case. Back in the day, it was these companies were starving for capital, and this was the only process they could go through was to go to an investment banker. Nowadays, it's they hold on to the company for a longer period of time. So when these companies come public, they're much more mature than they were, let's say, 20 years ago because they're trying to squeeze every last dollar out of that thing. And that's why you're starting to see a lot of, this is my interpretation. This okay. is, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna speculate here. My interpretation is these names like Uber and Lyft, they're all trading down after the deal because there's no institutional support. There's no, there, there's no support whatsoever to hold the stock up. They're, they're exiting at the absolute, probably optimal price and all the hype and everything is squeezed out of it. There's nowhere to go but down. Now, right. you know, if you want to get on a deal, back in the day, you would, you know, you would have to do business with, let's say, a Hamburg and Quist. Well, now they, they, there's no, there's no commitment to do business with anybody. So there's nobody really to support the deal. That's why I believe a lot of these things are trading down. Is because they're coming fully priced, and they're and, and there's no support, and they trade right down. And and people look around and go, what's going on? And the reality is, is it, it's fully priced at that point in time. Okay, so so to, to again, just to, to follow up on that question. So here's here's so I'm I'm running this this software company, and right. I'm saying, okay, Paul, help me go public. So now what what's happening is, do I give you a chunk of shares and I sell it to you, and then you go sell it to the market, and I that's how I get the capital in my coffers? How does that process of the actual trade happening on IPO day? Where does how does that money transition from the person buying it? to the actual company's coffers in the CFO's hands. Where, where does that process work? That's very simple. It's as simple as they sell the share. They, what they do is they, the bank goes, uh, figures out, does do all the due diligence, looks at the comps, looks at companies like yours, and then mm -hmm. goes to the institutional clientele and says, hey, we're going to bring this company public. Mm -hmm. This is what, these are their comps. These are, what, what do you think is, you know, and they start kind of developing a, a, a share price uh, a range for what they think the company's worth based off of other comps. And so they'll go back and forth, back and forth, and, and they'll talk to the institutional clientele and they'll finally say, okay, and, and, and you'll start to see, you'll see a prospectus come out and it'll say the range is between 12 and $14 on 2 million shares, which represents, let's say, you know, 20% of the float or, you know, they're going to sell 20% of the company or something like that. The other shares remain the same way. The banks figure out how to, to the invest, and this is where the investment banker comes in. He comes in, gets all the shares, gets all those private shares, and turns them into basically public public shares. He does it like a simple uh, transaction where he converts the all the uh, private shares, the a, private A, B, C, D. You know how you, you you hear them sometimes when they raise money in the in um, for venture cap. Yeah, they, they raise. Series A, B, C, D. They, they take all those series and they combine them together and they turn them into common shares. And they they do their evaluation and their calculation. They're like, hey, that A that A share is worth this. That B share is worth this. That C share is worth this. They put all that together. Mm -hmm. And then what they do is they the syndicate gets together and they go down the list of all the, the institutional clients that are interested in buying the company and they put in what they call an allocation and they say, Hey, I want 2 million shares. And, and sometimes, and, and so you'll hear a term called oversubscribed. That basically means they're offering to sell 2 million shares 
and they're let's say it's two times oversubscribed, it's really four million shares. And you'll hear three times or four times. And what they're referring to is the number of shares that are actually um, being offered at the time. And the more times something's oversubscribed, that shows you the type of demand that's that's out there. So uh, people are always clamoring for uh, the additional shares on the deal. So th th in simple terms, that's how that transaction's done. How it gets to the money is very simple. After a certain period of time, uh, and I won't get too much into it, there's some other green shoe stuff that, you, you know, technical stuff that they that, that we can get into, but uh, it's probably a little bit too much. But the, the bottom line is after three days, they cut them a check, uh, they sell the number of shares, they, they take out all their commissions and all their fees, and the, the firm gets the rest of the money and, and they go about their business and trying to grow their business. It's, wow. it's, it's really that simple. It's, it, 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 there's a lot of technical de details involved in it, but for the most part, getting the money to the, to the company is probably the easiest thing. It's as simple as a wire transfer. And I it goes, see. Our, our, our syndicate, uh, or whatever the, the word they use, the, from the syndicate to the company. I see. So, so the question is this. So, so let's say, so I'll give you an example of, of, of a company that's like clearly doing this on a different scale. So let's just say Apple. So yeah. you're Tim Cook and you're like, okay, guys, we want to buy our shares back. Right. So to the layman person, can you please explain to us what is happening when Apple says, I want to buy our shares back? What are they doing? How are they doing it? Why are they doing it? And uh, how is it that a company can have, let's say, a billion outstanding shares or, or whatever the, the crazy numbers are out there? Because if these guys are buying back, let's say, $80 billion worth of stock, what's happening? How does the stock from the initial day that Apple goes public to the days that it is at now, how does the number of shares just keep increasing in the market? How come all this uh, uh, liquidity comes into play? Where does all this come from? Is it just generated because people sit around and come to terms with it? Or is there an actual process that says, hey, when you're looking at a company and, and, and after they've IPO'd and they're like a tiny little fragment of what they, what they are today, like Apple today's a trillion dollar company, how do we get to a billion shares? What's going on? Like, where's that process? Because we need people to really understand all this. Because then, once we get that foundational layer underneath our feet, then we can start talking about the real interesting stuff, which is about where this thing can go completely sideways on us. Yeah. So th there's a number of ways where the shares can come from. They can come from obviously the company where they do what they call a secondary. So the 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 IPO is the initial where the the company is not public, and we bring shares to we we sell shares to the public. Uh, that's called an IPO. And then there's a secondary, and then uh, I've only done primaries and secondaries, but I'm sure that there's other ways. And they have what they call shelf deals, where they say, where they file with the SEC and say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna sell some shares. We just don't know when, but these are the parameters we're gonna do it off of. And as long as you kind of file with the the regulators, you can you can kind of what they call jam it to the tape at any point. Uh, given the allotted time that you have that you filed with the regulators. That's getting a little bit farther outside of my comfort zone or my base of knowledge because that's more in an investment banking relationship or more of an investment banking knowledge thing. But the simple fact is I've seen deals where all of a sudden somebody, you know, the company sells 5 million shares of X, of Apple overnight and they're like, well, what, 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 where did that come from? And it's like, well, it was a shelf deal, meaning they knew about it but they, they, they got, it got to a point where there were so many people that they could put the trade on that they actually did it. And, and, and here's the deal. When you put trades like that on, all that matters is that you have the buyers and you have a willing seller. It's that simple. 
So as long as you have uh, enough institutional buyers, retail buyers, whoever that wants to buy those shares and, 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 and has the cash to pay the company, the trade's going to it's, it's gonna settle in, in basically two or three days, however they have it situated. So that's where shares come from. They also come from a lot of options that are given to employees. Hey, we need to, we need to, you know, when Facebook and, and, and all those companies were, were, were up and comers and they weren't able to pay anybody, what did they give them? They gave them stock options, right? They gave them, they gave them warrants. They gave them all this special stuff to be like, Hey, we're, we're going to sell these to you pennies on the share because we think you're a valuable talent and you will make our company grow. And, and, and if, and if we hit a home run, you do too. So that's also where a lot of these shares come from is they come from the company, but they also come from the options that are, that are issued to the employees along those lines. So you'll see that sometimes like Uber at some point in the next six months or a year, whenever the lockup comes off, they'll be able to sell what they call restricted stock. So there's another layer of, 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 of stock that may come at, at you and people are like, well, I'm just going to, what, what it, so you'll start to see people talk about the restriction coming off. You'll start to read, Hey, Uber's restrictions coming off in 30 days or 60 days. And guys will try to short against that, right? If they think it's going to go low enough, they'll, they'll short that they shouldn't, but they do. They short that. And then they cover, they cover at the lower price. Once the deal, once these restricted shares come off. Now here's, here's the risk involved in that. What if the stock goes up? Right. What if something comes out while you're putting on your short and you were thinking, oh, well, all these all these shares are going to come off restriction and flood the market. How am I going to, you know, what, what if that goes against me? That's a great example of people making assumptions about stuff that's not always true. That's why when you hear a lot of these analysts start talking about, well, this is this is how it's got to happen. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to happen that way. And and, and, and I recently tweeted about this a little bit was this idea of I didn't talk to my analysts. I didn't want to know what they th they thought about a company. I just didn't. Why? Because at the end of the day, they just screwed my head up. All I cared about was making money, trying to uh, trying to look at uh, the flow of supply and demand with a price mm -hmm. and try to assess, hey, is there an asymmetric benefit to me being long or an mm -hmm. asymmetric benefit to be being short? And at the crux of what makes traders kind of special is they figure that out. Now, Nassim was the first guy that I ever read that really talked about that. He gave me the vernacular so I could understand it. I mean, I did it, but I never understood it. And he comes along and said, he starts writing about all this stuff. And I, and I was like, holy, holy smokes. Somebody <laughs> has, finally, has finally articulated all these feelings I had about trading into a book. So I, I didn't mean to transition to there, but the no. bottom line is that's exactly how it, how, how people don't realize is what makes traders so special is they see all these dynamics a thousand times. Mm. You're, you're doing multiple trades after multiple trades. And so mm. these moves and jumps and, and changes, you see them all the time and you start to get hardwired into thinking in terms of convexity, concavity, mm. risk mm -hmm. exposure, being upside down, not listening to analysts because they've got a particular spin on a, a thing. 
narratives will kill you in the equity market in, in markets in general because mm. you fall in love with them right because because they sound so compelling so you're That's sitting right. there listening to these guys and you're like you're like oh yeah that does sound good that's why i don't listen to them that's why <laughs> I, I don't pay attention to the news great book if anybody is really interested in trading it's called market wizards it's by jack swaggered or swager or whatever you power you pronounce his name mm. here's the funny thing mm. It, that book was written uh, 1988, uh, 30 years ago. So at the end of the day, here's the deal. Every one of those guys all talked about one thing. They never talked about making money. They talked about how do I, how do I uh, express losses? How do I express when do I get out? How do I express uh, the risk associated with anything? Every one of them, not one of them didn't, not one of them talked about, oh, I made, you know, a hundred million dollars or 50 million. They didn't, they never talked about that stuff. Right. They talked, right. They talked about one side and there was only one side that mattered because right. at the end of the day, it's the only thing that matters is, Hey, if, if I get humiliated, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, what, what happens? And, and, and then you start to quantify, well, what's humiliation? Right. Well, most people say down 7%, right? So if you put on a position and it goes down 7%, it's 1% of capital, and you got all these really sophisticated ways of looking at it, then at the end of the day, guess what? You're out. You, right. You, your decision making, because I always say this, either you're going to make the decision or the decision's going to be made for you, but something's right. going to happen. Right, and, right. And, and the name of the game in trading is very simple. Protect your capital. Because when you don't have any more, it's awfully, trade, it's awfully tough to trade with zero. No, of course. No. So, so, so the question I have on that front is, because as you're, as you're explaining this to me, because I'm, I'm thinking about it from the point of view of the average person who clearly has no clue what's going on here. So you walk into the office, and you're sitting in front of your desk, and you got five different positions on eight different stocks, and you've been just basically training your brain to be a pattern recognition um, machine, because you're looking at the stock. It, my, my assumption, based on everything you told me, is you're not sitting there and reading reports. You're not sitting there and necessarily speaking um, to uh, various uh, to various vendors, what you're doing is you're essentially looking at the screen, and based on what you see on the screen, you're making your decisions. Would that be accurate, or is that that's, way off? That's that's spot on. You're you're looking for little indications. Yeah, we used. Yeah, I did use technical analysis. Would I use it now? Probably not. You know, but that's part of the pro. That's part of the reason why I don't trade anymore because that stuff really doesn't work over the long term. They've gotten so, these machines have gotten so good about, and there's so many layers of, of um, types of algorithms and high frequency traders that, you know, people used to be, it used to be like, oh, their value or their momentum or their this. Now there's just so many cross currents about, it's impossible to really read what's going on. So to answer your original question, yes, that's what I used to do. I used to walk in. And if I, I tried to go home flat almost every day, like a high frequency trader, why? Because I wanted to sleep at night. That was number one. But number two, if I had to carry position, I had to also be able to explain to management if it went against me, what went wrong. And I did not like getting called into the, we used to call it the fishbowl because all it had were glass. It was glass totally around. And when you ended up in there, it wasn't where you wanted to be. Right. Right, right, right. No, so, so, so the question is as, as follows, right? So I'm thinking about it from the point of view of, all right, so I hire you, you're trading at my desk for my company, 
And I say, okay, you got my firm's money. Um, I need you to go do this because you're quite excellent at it. And for years, you're making me uh, sums of money left, right, and center. And I have the turkey problem, which is now I assume that you're really good at this. Mm-hmm. And I give you some more leeway than I really should because mm-hmm. I start to, as, as people who are doing well for you, you start to give them uh, more blind spots because you're like, I, I don't have to worry about this. So Paul goes in and now we're, you know, we're shifting over to Society General with that one rogue trader. And this is all going to wrap, wrap always, everything we talk about eventually wraps around Nassim Taleb's conversations about Encerto. So I just want the people to know that that's where we're taking this. So you go in and you put these positions and when, and, and I want to, I want the, the average person to understand when you say I'm going to short a position. So if I understand it correctly, it doesn't mean the following. So today the stock price for Apple, let's say it's a hundred dollars a day. And I say, Hey, you know what? In three months, I think this price is going to go down to 50. So I'm going to bet you that it's going to go down to that price point. And what, what I'm really doing is I'm hoping it goes below 50 so that I can go buy it at that lower price and come back and sell it to you at 50. Is that what it means to say I'm shorting a stock? Yeah, it's, I'll, I'll basically say it this way. It's a, okay. think, about, think about it this way. Why do you buy a stock? You buy it because you think it's going to go up, right? Yes, hopefully. It's a, Turn it's that a, upside down. Yeah, exactly. Turn that upside <laughs> down. If uh-huh. you short a stock, you think it's going to go down. That's that you're basically inverting it. Now there's some technical things. You have to borrow the shares. The shares actually there's there's a physical transaction. That's where people kind of get like, well, how do you physically do it? What right. they that they do is you have to go borrow the shares from an investment bank who has those shares uh, because they 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 hold those shares in custodian. So let's say you wanted to short IBM, right? Okay. okay. And you and you you have a you have a uh, a relationship with uh, you have an account with Charles Schwab. And okay. you go into Charles Schwab and you're like, hey, can I, I want to short these things. They're like, okay, well, you're going to have to put up 50% margin. So mm-hmm. let's say you want to short uh, you know, one share at 100 bucks. We're going to make this real easily. Okay. And you're going to have to come up with 50 bucks okay. to put in a margin to account for that, for, for, for any slippage that you might see. And okay. then you go out and you sell that share at, a, at 100 bucks and hoping at some point in the future that it goes down. Now, what you're, what you're also weighing, there's some technical things here from interest rates and margin rates and all this other stuff that you have to come into the calculation and figure out what your true cost is. But that's basically what you're doing is you're just looking at instead of buying it because you think it's going to go up, you're selling it because you think it's going to go down. Right Now, here's the deal. Mm. That gets really sophisticated with options and swaps and forwards. And I mean, these guys take this stuff into a whole new level. So even though we're talking about a very simple idea, where the real problems occur mm-hmm. is in this layer of complexity of this whole world that we have no idea. I don't know what the number is. I've heard $100 trillion, but I know it's astronomical uh, that the derivatives world. That's why Buffett says mass, you know, weapons of mass destruction, because we just don't know who's doing what, because those are all private contracts. So a right. lot of you know, with with you know as we saw with um, with the big short when they when the guy went in there and, and did all that is this stuff same thing right? right he was there was a layer of complexity that we're like well nobody's ever done that before he's like well I want to do it and you know what you know what the bank said sure this is our, <laughs> this is our price you want to do it and they give you a price for it so at the end of the day that's kind of what it is is when you short you think the value is going to go up when you go long. You think the values, or excuse me, when it, when you're short, you think the value is going to go down. 
when you're long, you think the value is going to go up. It's just the complete opposite of being long. You're short. You're long. You're short. That's the vernacular. Gotcha. So the question is this. And so it seems to me from what you're describing here is that there's the market where the general firm is actually just looking to raise some money because they want to expand on their future business plans. Yes. So they come in, they do the IPO, and at the IPO, it's kind of like a voting process. Like everybody who's buying shares is hopefully voting that this company is going to go somewhere. Now that company goes on about this, about its business, um, and it and every quarter when it's time to report the results, it's kind of like a weighing station, right? It's like you said, you're going to put on 50 pounds of profit. Let's measure how much you actually put on. So while all that's happening on the side, we got this whole other business that seems to have just sprouted up where people are betting on what particular thing is going to happen over which company during which timeline. And this side market of betting with uh, these fancy options and these derivatives that you spoke about appears to be entity all on its own that looks like it's a proxy to what's happening in the market, but it seems like it's its own beast. Have I got that right, or am I just completely out to lunch on that? No, no, you do, but you, you got to take one thing into account. You never mm. really know why people put trades on. That's right. why when people talk about something like, well, what's the short interest? Oh, really? Mm. That doesn't, that's, that's a nice metric to look at, but at the end of the day, it didn't really tell anything. Because somebody might have that position hedged, right? Or they might have an option against it, or they might have... Uh, some other type of sophisticated derivative structure that they they couldn't do they couldn't they couldn't put it on one way so they used a a correlated vehicle to put it on so mm. you know when, when you start looking at all these individual metrics you're like well this is clearly going to go X Y Z that's fine but you again you don't know what's going on in the market and the way people have had you know structured these vehicles. And there's just a lot of layers of complexity that, and that's why when you see sometimes when you're like, oh, that stock's got to go up. They just blew out the number. And you're like, well, if everybody loaded up prior to that, the stock probably is going to trade down because there are no more buyers left. Right, 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 right. So, 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 so that's why when people always get confused, they're always, they're always the, under the assumption of, oh, that, oh, that's, you know, Amazon will never go up because, and I remember people, I had guys short in Yahoo. I had guys short in Amazon. I had guys short in all those names, right? And they were always like, this thing's going to go to zero. They don't make any money. And, and, and I was just always the same of, you, there's a dynamic here that sometimes we miss. And so that's why I never either short or went long, any of that stuff, because I just didn't know. Right, right, right. So, so the question is this. And so now we're going to tie all this into the average person. Because the average person's hearing everything we're talking about here. And they're sort of hopefully getting a glimpse into the complexity of, the, uh, of what the world is, is uh, of finance entails. So the person wants to know, okay, guys, it's 2006. Everybody's doing great. Uh, you know, the world is, uh, is improving. And all of a sudden, just two years later, everything collapses. How do we go from everything is great to everything like the world is over where, where, where does that problem start? How come nobody really sees it coming? Even in the general public, they just like, all you hear is, oh, there was a stock market crash in uh, 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 Black, Black Monday, I think it was in 87, or when uh, you know, the crash happened in, in 29 or you know, in 2008, or when the dot-com bubble quote-unquote burst. The question I, I always get asked, because I've been, you know, as I was telling people that I'm going to have you on, this is the one thing they keep asking me. They go, okay, ask him, how does this happen? Like, how come we go, everything is great one day, and all of a sudden, boom, everything collapses. And I always try to remind them, you know, this is the turkey problem. You know, everybody's doing well, you know, everybody's being well fed. But what's happening is they're actually being driven into the slaughterhouse. But walk us through this process. Like, how does the economy go from everybody's doing fantastic to, oh, my God, the next recession is around the corner. Everybody bail out everybody else. 
it gets back to to, to Nassim's asymmetry in in convexity and concavity. Where, where's your exposure? If your second order effect is is, is got an accelerated uh, second derivative to the downside, watch out. And that means that you you know each incremental loss causes something else to lose, right? And so mm -hmm. so for example, uh, and and I'll use Nassim's. Uh, example because it's just so spot on is traffic. You know, one additional car is no big deal until it, until it reaches a saturation point, and then each additional car starts to have uh, exponential differential to uh, to the traffic, and it, and it starts. And so each of it, it, so initially it's each car adds a minute, and then after after it reaches a saturation point, point each car re, uh, costs three minutes. And then, and then, and then, after a certain point, each additional car costs five minutes, and then twenty minutes. And you see, as you start to see, you start to accelerate. Each additional car doesn't add a one-to-one -one linear relationship. It's it's convex in nature, or con. In this particular case, it's you know, if you're trying to get somewhere, it's concave. You're gonna, it's gonna add to the amount of time you're you're doing. What it what had happened in 05, and it was something that was was driving me crazy because I was at the time I was very interested in what was what was happening in California. It was the only time uh, in 01 and 02 when when the tech bubble blew up, houses didn't go down. They went right. straight, and, I, and I was like, where are they getting this money? I never knew where it was. And obviously it was coming from the banks. But where was all this money coming from? Where, why mm. were people getting loans that, that, that clearly didn't have the ability to pay? And it just took on a whole life of its own. And it's that whole reflexivity issue where things have a tendency to, oh, well, houses will always go up. And and I guarantee you, and I talked to a lot of people in 05 and 06, and they would always say the same thing. Price is irrelevant. And I'm like, well, you really can't say that. And I, and I was, and, and, and I wouldn't really get into fights with about it because it, I'd only get aggravated, but it was always the same. It was, well, why are you paying 500 grand for that house? You, you only make, 40 grand a year and they're like well that's what the bank will allow me to buy and i'm like yeah well don't you realize if it goes down in value and the interest rates you know uh can't make up the differential you're going to lose a lot of money if you can't refinance and they're like oh that'll never happen I i'm not kidding you i heard it not once not twice but hundreds of times when you would talk to people about that in, in 05 and 06. so where does it come from it comes from a realization of what people think the world is or what they think it is versus what it really is. And right. I call them, re and, and why do they crash? I call them reality resets. Mm. And it's when the world finally gets real. It's like when you walk into a dark alley and you're, 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 you're met with a couple thugs, right. and guess what? As the kids say, shit just got real for you. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and there's no turning back. It's like you're, you're, you're about to get owned. The right. same thing happens on Wall Street. People make assumptions about Wall Street and that guy Chuck Prince said it best. Hey man, we got to keep playing because everybody else is playing. They didn't care about the risk. Right, right, right. They so, so simply didn't care. So it seems to me like, like based on the earlier conversation we had, it seems to me like you start you you sell a narrative about oh, uh, you know, uh, in in five years we're gonna have artificial intelligence and we're gonna exactly. drive the car from here to New York and you could take a nap and everybody's like yes, let's do that. They all put the money into it and and the and the person who's taking all this money is spending it in directions that are not bringing the return that was promised. And the reality check reset point, as you stated, is when everybody says, you know, all this money we gave you, 
and all the results you promised are no longer lining up. So is that what you would call the reality uh, reset point? That's exactly right. That's that that would be considered a reality reset. Hey, you're starting to see it with the with with uh, with with the uh, academic charade that's going on, right? Is mm -hmm. we're we're producing a ton of people that are highly educated. There's just right. not that many jobs for those folks. Right. So they're going to take out all this money, mm -hmm. and then everybody's going to be like, and and, and, and I, what I find fascinating, mm -hmm. we just saw it in 07. We right. just saw the exact same thing occur after 50 years. People are like, well. You know, if you buy a house, it'll always go up. They're saying the same thing about education. Well, if right. you get a degree, you're always going to make more money. And I'm like, you know, you realize that when you pay for something, you, you want to get value out of it. You know, price, right. Buffett says price is what you pay, value is what you get. So yes. you want to get something out of it. But the problem with it is at some point, it, if you have 100 doctors in a small town, mm -hmm. uh, if, if you have 100 people in a small town and 99 of them are doctors and one's a mechanic, Take a guess probably going to make the most money. Of course, regardless of, course. of education. Of so, course. So, so when you when you break it down that simply, you mm -hmm. start to start to realize is we're reaching a saturation point with the with, with these educated kids. There's just mm -hmm. not enough jobs to go around for those for for those kids, uh, and the price that they're paying is exorbitant. It, yeah. So they're basically buying. Oh, I don't know. I can't think of a stock that's crashed in. But let's just say the Nasdaq. Upon. They're they're buying Nasdaq in two thousand and one at five grand, and it's mm -hmm. just before the collapse. And, and and then they go, oh, I'm a long term investor. Oh, really? Well, what if your money gets sliced in half? Right. You're gonna find out who's a long term investor. You know whether absolutely. or not they're gonna pile more money in. So that oh, absolutely that, that, that you know what what's funny about that is uh, I've I've had these conversations and I speak as a person who went and got uh, educated twice after high school, once for engineering, once for for business. I, I get the trade-off much more because, like I said, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this podcast and the guests that we're going to be bringing on is that all of us revolve around this concept of having survived witnessing a black swan, right? My, my family, we came from Afghanistan, and in Afghanistan, the whole premise of everything around life is you must get educated, which is fantastic. But the, the, the caveats that go with that are never implied, i.e., hey, how are you paying for that education? What's the debt you're going to be incurring for that education? More importantly, when you get out of that, that particular program, are you going to have a job that actually pays you enough to cover the payments on that debt plus try to make a life out of it? And of course, these things get compounded because now you want to buy a, you know, a house or you have a lease for a car and you have uh, you know, uh, insurance payments to make and you want to go to the gym and you still want to go and quote unquote live your best life. As, as people say, you still want to take a trip with your friends to Cancun. And so these kids are coming out with these degrees. And, and, and the biggest flaw that I've ever witnessed when I was in school was that every program cost the exact same thing. And I said, you know what? When I go to a nice steak, uh, steakhouse, even if it's a nice steakhouse, not everything is priced the exact same way. The fact that you're charging me uh, you know, 20 grand for a degree in finance and you're charging my friend uh, the same price for a degree in sociology, there's an asymmetric uh, relationship right then and there. And the relationship is not in the benefit of the, us, the students. It's in the benefit of the administrators of this particular university who are looking at this saying, hey, you know what? We've pushed this agenda out there far enough that everybody should get an education. Everybody, And you hear all the politicians say it all the time. You know, Everybody go get an education. Education is your key to freedom. What they have conflated in my mind, and as far as I can tell, is they've conflated that the only way to get educated is to go through school. And the only way to go through school is to incur these massive amounts of debts which become liabilities for you. And so I think you know, on this particular point, we're in agreement because I see it where I have all these friends whose kids, and you know, they're, they're younger now, they still want to 
um, make things happen, but it's really not going very far. That's exactly right. And, and to your point, and I, and I always say this, you know, the, the, the spin has always been, you've been indoctrinated from the word go, right? Elementary school, why do you go to good elementary school? So you can get a, you, you can, or why do you go to a good preschool? So you're going to get good elementary school, elementary school to a good junior high school, good junior high school to a good high school, good high school to a good college. Why do you go to college and get upper degrees so you can get a good job so you can buy your house? And, and, and my big grind on this whole thing is, and this is where I get a little aggravated, is the sense of there, all this revolves around kind of cost and, and leverage and, and buying the big house and living the dream and, you know, and getting married and, and so forth and so on. I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue that. I'm just saying that be aware of the cost as you're kind of going up this thing and what happens if you have uh, a drawdown. You know, what happens if, you know, you get you, you, you catch a recession, and you're out of work for two years, you know, can, can you sustain something out of that? Now, the most of the evidence says, no, they probably can't. But at least have it in the back of your mind to, to be, hey, if it happens, how would I manage that? You know, and and so for me, I, you know, I, I run into that a little bit is, hey, I lost, you know, had a job. Now I'm unemployed and now I'm look now I'm trying to figure out, hey, what do I need to do? to, you know, now I had some assets that, that I was able to sell, but at the end of the day, guess what? I think mm. about it. I think of about course. it all, you think about it all the time. And if you're not thinking about it, I don't think you're, I'm not gonna badmouth people about that. I'm just saying, I, I hope that they at least take it into consideration that, you know, look at the possibilities. If you catch a drawdown of two years or six months and you lose your job, can you survive? And if you can't, then you may wanna restructure your finances so you can, uh, you know, before it's, well, I don't want to say too late, but you, you, I think you get the point. No, of course. So, so this goes back to our other points of view with, with regards to these things, because uh, once you've read uh, the Inchardo volume, the, the ideas that always pop into your head are just concepts of convexity and fat tails and uh, concavity that comes with it if you bet in the wrong direction. So if you can enlighten our, our listeners and just... Uh, in the simplest of terms, explain what convexity means from a trader's point of view, explain what concavity means, and explain how, when you earlier, you mentioned the second order effects. Can we just give an example where you can illustrate that? Because the average person, when they hear these words, they don't really necessarily quite understand what it means. So let's give them a real life experience of what the word convexity means and, and how does that affect your decision-making process going forward? So, so and I, and I had an experience where I was trading. I came in one day. And um, the stock had closed at, at basically $38. And my job was to go to institutional clientele going, hey, I'll buy uh, a set number of shares at this price. And so I went around and told everybody I'd buy. I thought, oh, you know, down 30%. Um, you know, I'll be, able to, I'll be able to get out of this thing, you know, down 30%. So I bought 100,000 shares at, at $28. The stock opened at 13, and that means that nothing traded. It just that's where it eventually opened. There were so many sellers that basically anything that I uh, tried to do to try to get out of that position, it was not going to ever happen. The stock, the stock was down 60% in all of about 30 minutes. So you got kicked and in the teeth. You got totally kicked in the teeth, right? So it's the proverbial. It's it's not really a black swan because the black swan would mean like basically I lost all the money that I had ever made in trading. So the answer is I didn't experience quite that, but mm -hmm. I, I had such a stomach punch 
that's concavity. And that mm. means that basically, very simply, is that you have accelerated harm from uh, a, a, a particular position. And, and that's, you know, and, or you have an accelerated benefit, right? So getting back to any, you know, very simply is uh, each share I had, uh, you know, as it went low, lower became more painful. And I lost mm. basically more and more money and then the real question is, what do you do? You know, when you when you run into those situations, you know, how do you manage it? Well, how did you manage it? How did I manage it? I <laughs> sold it. I, my, my boss pulled me aside and said, you'll never get it back. Sell mm. it and keep moving on. Mm. And uh, he was dead right. He The stock went to $8 uh, over the next two years, and it never came back. Wow. And so it, it's it's a great example. that that That's more in a, of an absorbent barrier. But it does kind of show you that, Convexity and concavity are very simple. Mm. Accelerated harm or accelerated benefit for each added individual unit. That's mm. in the simplest terms. That's exactly what it is. So each car that's added on causes more harm than the previous car. Each new drug that you take has you know uh, has a better benefit than if you were just to take one. So if you were to take two drugs instead of one drug, and you get uh, you know instead of you know, one incremental benefit, you get five. That's mm. asymmetric. That's that's convexity. That's mm. that's accelerated benefit. That's in the simplest terms. That's how I that's how I look at it. Right. I'm sure the complexity guys are a lot better at explaining this stuff than I. I mean, I uh, my lens is always through trading. It, it'll always. Um. You know, number one, uh, I don't have a higher education, so. I don't necessarily look through that. That's why I read all these guys. That's why I follow all these guys is because I'm trying to get a better understanding of the things that I experienced right. and how do I frame them so I can explain them to somebody else. Uh, because at the end of the day, that's I think we're all trying to wrap our heads around all these very complex ideas and how they make us, and, 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 I, and, and I'll put it in simple terms, how, how, how they help you make better decisions, how you avoid black swans, that kind of stuff. Of course, no. See, because because I think where um, we mesh together in, the, in this particular little quote unquote firm, as you uh, like to refer to us, is that uh, I look at it from the point of view of software, right? So when we build software, and we say, okay, um, like you know, I've worked, at, I've I've done consulting for startups, I've done um, work for uh, major companies, and what they do is they say, okay, we want you to just build this little feature. I'm like, okay, great, we can do that feature, and then they ask you, how much do you need? And then my answer is always, how many users are you expecting? And they're like, well, why, why does that matter? I said, well, the, the reason it matters is the code isn't some sort of magic fairy dust running somewhere in the cloud. What it is is there's a server with a dedicated amount of resources for this particular program that's running. And that server has a ability that's basically finite. And I could tell you based on how much traffic I hit that with. And once I hit that server with that amount of traffic, it'll just crash. And that's just what it is. So the question is, if you're going to build a feature, so this is what happens at Facebook, right? If you look at the uh, the conversation that Mark Zuckerberg always has with his, uh, with his engineering team is this whole concept of move fast and break things. People don't really understand what that means. What that means is build something so good that so many people want it that it breaks the site down. That's essentially what he's asking for. So that's an engineering point of view. And what he's saying is you've thought of something so clever and so useful that so many people want it that it actually strains the rest of our system. Now, unfortunately, in the political climate, people have taken that to mean, you know what, just let anything go and we'll, we'll see where it happens because they always uh, miss the technical point of view on that front. But that's actually not what he really means about that. And, and, and the same thing happens in the weight room, right? Go to the weight room and start 
doing bodyweight squats. Okay, so that's a little bit of convexity for you because your harm on doing bodyweight squats is very limited, but the benefit you gain from doing that is very good. Then we say, okay, put on a bar and do the exact same thing. So again, we're adding a little bit of um, a payoff for you that's, that's good on the front because you can say, okay, I see the cost of this. It's just my body weight plus a 45-pound bar. The odds of me injuring myself with this is extremely low. I'm doing great. A couple of weeks go by, now I'm going to put on 25 more pounds. A couple more weeks go by, and now I'm at 200 pounds. Now I'm at my own body weight. So now we have a, a point where things start to change. So it's no longer a linear progression of benefits coming to you. The amount of risk you're taking to continue to do that exercise is also going up. So it's no longer that, you know, that's why I get these young kids at the gym. They're always asking me, Ace, you know, you squat over 640 pounds. How did you do that? And I'm trying to get there. I'm like, listen, first of all, you don't want to get there. As a person who's been there, I can tell you that the payoff and the benefit you get from being able to do that is completely overshadowed by the amount of harm I have induced onto myself going through that process. Because what you're doing is you get to a certain point. It's like, I'm really thirsty. Give me a, a glass of water. That's fantastic. I am so thirsty now that there's so much water that I'm going to drown. So everything has a point at which it becomes toxic to you. So same thing happens in software. You build a feature and people figure out a clever way to use it and now it becomes toxic to your entire environment. That's what happened to Facebook. Their whole privacy is, oh, we don't really need privacy. Everybody should be able to talk to each other. Now it's, 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 you know, they're running as fast as possible in the opposite direction because what was a good thing in a small controlled dose has become a runaway thing in the opposite direction. Same thing happens to you know, your traffic analogy. You know, we, I, I succinctly remember when I first started, uh, you know, when I was living in Canada, I remember as a kid, you know, there was very, very little traffic. And then today, as I was, I was coming to this conference call to, to have this Skype conversation with you, yeah. we got stuck in traffic every step of the way. And that's because all of my friends, I just thought about it simply. I said, you know what? I was, my dad was the only person driving. My uncles and, and uh, a couple of them were driving. That's it. Now, my, my friends and my cousins, all of them are driving. Plus, my uncle's still driving. So, the, just, just add that math in your head. It's okay. How many cars are going to get on this highway? What used to be there plus what's going to be added onto it. And the highway is not really designed to handle that kind of capacity. So the convexity conversation actually is a thread that weaves its way through, you know, lifting weights, how well you eat, you know, uh, when you bet your money, you know, and, and betting your money, most people think, oh, I don't bet money in the stock market. Yeah, you kind of do when you swipe your credit card. That's a bet, right? The bet you're making there is that you're going to pay it off faster than the interest that you're going to end up paying for it. And that's going to accumulate and you eat away at your potential optionality for future plays. Same thing happens when you bet on, on, on a stock, right? It's like, okay, I can take this money and I can either go and start a business with it or I can bet it on company X. Either way, there's a cost to this for you to, to, to take on. And so what we're trying to really illuminate for people here is that there's a layer to this that actually ties together from one end to the other. And to, and, and, and to bring back the complexity conversation around this is, is this idea of Newtonian mechanics versus nonlinear dynamics. And the, one of the things that um, helped me really get the message out about this particular blog is um, there's a famous physicist, I won't say who, um, and uh, his famous tweet, every time we get something landed on the Mars uh, uh, for the rover, he says something along the lines of, oh, everybody trusts scientists because we can land the rover on Mars, but yet they question us when we talk about climate science. And then that's where I get really upset because I'm like, this person who's clearly famous, has a PhD in, in physics, should know better but he's conflating Newtonian deterministic physics where you can say, yeah, if a bullet was shot uh, you know, to the president and the guy was on the roof, we could tell you exactly where it was shot from against, oh, climate change. That's like a probabilistic model. We have no idea where it started. We don't know how it's going to affect anything. And I've seen interviews where people push this agenda. And, and the question is always simple. Okay, 
how much carbon for how many degrees of temperature. And the problem with that particular measurement is the same thing as the conversation of, to be had about, oh, GDP grew by 3%. Okay, that doesn't mean anything because the United States as a whole grew 3%, but some parts of the country clearly probably you know, shrank 18%. It's like it's like saying I want to say the average temperature of the United States is three degrees today. Well, okay, are you taking into account Alaska and Florida? Like where where does these these models? This kind of comes back to the better procrustis, right? We have this model that you want to fit the world into, and it's clearly not fitting in. And so I think that is enough meat for us to really get into the conversation about where the harm comes in when you don't understand these things. Yeah, so, and I think and I think to your point, uh, I think. Nassim has, has done an excellent job at conveying the idea of looking looking through the world from the tails, right? And in in particular your 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 left tail, which is where the harm comes from. And if you notice, and like I mentioned before in Market Wizards, these guys have always built their their models and their trading their trading models under the underlying premise of uh, where's the harm coming from. They don't worry about the the if you can make money that will take care of itself. The issue is, is if you lose, how bad does it hurt you? Are you taken out? And if you are, then you may want to take a step, you, you probably want to take a step back and reevaluate because to be, to be a serial trader, which is somebody who can make money not over a week or two, but years upon years upon years, uh, you have to manage your risk. And so if you look at everything from I just do. I, it's the, I'm a contrarian by nature, so uh, I just look at most things from the tails, which is, in particular, the left tail. Why? It's just the way I'm wired. Uh, I, you know, if somebody says, oh, you know, there's this, that, and the other thing, I, I, I find myself not agreeing or disagreeing. I just want to do my own homework. Yeah, no, that, that's, that, that's totally, uh, I guess it's in line with the way I think about things, which is I would rather fail a test on my own efforts than to pass it off somebody else that I copied from, right? I think you have sort of the same mindset, which is as long as I know going in, whatever the uh, consequences are that they're of my own doing, I'm totally happy with it. And, and, and to, to your earlier point about convexity, I always try to start every conversation with what's the worst that can happen here? So I know that my uh, downside risk is bounded. So I know, hey, if I buy this stock, uh, and it's usually like, if I, you know, I had a conversation with a friend about a week ago. If I buy this stock, um, what's, I'm going to assume that every, every penny I put into the stock is a loss. If that's the case, am I still okay with it? If not, I'll just reduce the amount I put into it. And that way I can, like you said, sleep at night, right? I don't want to be in a situation where I say, Hey, you know what? This stock is going to go up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the bank and grab a line of credit and I'm going to grab three credit cards. And I'm just going to buy all the stock I can afford with all my debts and loans to leverage myself because I'm, I have the expectation foolishly, uh, that tomorrow the stock is going to double and I'm going to collect all this profit. And that's where I think people lose the plot, which is that uh, it's not that you bet. It's that you bet with borrowed money so that it's going to kill you twice. Because it's, it's only going to, you know, you lost the money, but now you have to pay back all this extra money that you borrowed to do this. And I think when it comes back to the whole conversation about what happened in 08 and what's happening now with the education and how students are borrowing all this money, it's not just that you, you know, took a bet and it didn't go the right way. It's you took a bet that went the wrong way, plus it's got an interest attached to it. Would you concur on that front, or am I just again? I'll no, no, you're spot on. In fact, you, 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 at the end of the day, what what you had in 07 was a layer, layer, layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of leverage uh, in some form or another, and 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 at the end of the day, that's what gets you into trouble. It, mm -hmm. Leverage, whether or not you compress time or anything else, it's uh, 
if there's enough leverage in the system at some point it's gonna it's gonna come back and 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 smack you one so uh it was it was it was i won't say it's bound to happen it's all i always use the analogy of you know if you're going down the road at 175 miles an hour uh are you bound to get into a crash no i don't know if you are but if you do the question is what what's probably what's probably going to happen to you you're probably going to be dead yeah it's is 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 the way I think about things. So I always try to to frame it in such a way that because when you try to talk to people about these very complex ideas, they always go back to a, a narrative in some form, and that you can't get away with, you can't get away from it. Whether or not it's you know watching the news or anything else, it's there's always a narrative spin. So that's why I find myself mm-hmm. when it comes to like Twitter mm-hmm. is. I my my ultimate goal in that particular uh, product is to um, alleviate or lessen the amount of narrative that I see in uh, on my thread and mm-hmm. and, and so I, I make sure that I I'll, I'll just say brutally honest I block a lot of people right because I don't want any distractions of where I'm trying to to focus on hey if somebody else wants to not block anybody knock yourself out and right. They, they don't want to use it a particular way. I use Twitter strictly for a research tool. So, right. so from my perspective, it's all about, hey, staying away from narratives, doing your own homework, uh, trying to look at the world from tales. All these things tie into, you know, in some form or another, they all tie into to Inserto and, and what Nassim is, is writing about is, is the way I've, I've always viewed it. So. That's yeah, no, that that's 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 spot on, and 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 where I think this inter- conversation gets interesting is okay. You and I have, you know, we're just a couple of guys. You know, we're we're not uh, we're not uh, you know Einstein and Beethoven here, but we're we're just a couple of guys trying to make our, our way through this. Um, we elect people, and the SEC is supposed to watch this and say, hey, um, you know, the fox is in the henhouse. Why why are they allowing these banks to leverage and make these outrageous bets? What's happening there? And how come when they mess up? The first people to advocate on behalf of the banks are the people in government to say, yeah, you know what? They messed up. It's all right. Uh, we need to fund them or else the rest of us can't keep our jobs. So the question is, how does that happen? Why, why, why is the narrative so completely lost on that side of the equation? Because those guys aren't that smart. Look at it. Look at, look at all you have to do. And I mean this sincerely, right? Look at Madoff. N01. That's all you need. You, you go back to the, uh, to, the, to the Madoff problem. Those guys had somebody... I can't remember the guy's name, but he, he basically wrote him a playbook as to how Madoff was probably cheating mm. and, and and submitted it not once, not twice, like five times and, and hammered those guys and they still didn't get it. And, and and so so even when they had the roadmap and the answers to the test, they still failed it. So either they're incompetent or they're dumb. Right. But at the end of the day, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And invariably, guys like that get a pass. That's why we end up with things like 07, because you get to a point where something gets so big or so complex, they can't wrap their heads around it. There's right. just no way. There's just not enough. There's just not enough people to 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 uh, to attack the problem. So what do you do? Well, you have to figure out ways to to basically, you know, have a stop loss. You need mm. to figure out. Hey, you can only you can only have so much 
money, you know, being borrowed against or whatever, you know, some type of limitation has to be put in place because if you don't, you're not going to manage the tails. You're just not, you're going to end up with 07 all over again. And now it's, it's gone from being from the banks. Now it's on, uh, on the government's balance sheet, right? Now my question is, okay, I get it. We, we went from the retail guy to the banks and then we went from the banks to the government. Well, my next question is, is who's after the government? Who's going to, Who's going to write the check for the when the government uh, exit stage left? Right. And, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, you know, the lender of last resort. Well, what if the lender of the last resort doesn't have anything to lend? Okay, right. print money. Really? Right. You know, right. uh, you know. Uh, okay, you know, I'm not saying that 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 they won't go down that road, but you know, in some version or another. But uh, at some point, somebody's got to say, "Hey, listen, let's 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 stop the nonsense and." And, and get our minds right and refocus this thing and start managing uh, from the tail. And, right. and, and if you do that, I, I won't say all these problems go away, but I'll say a major, I'll, I'll say 99.9% go away. Right. If you manage everything from the tails and try to account for the risk in the system and, and assume that you're going to miss not one variable or two variables, you're going to miss a lot of variables. Right. You're right. going to miss a lot of things that are going to cause some problems. And if you miss them, you're stopped out. You're good because you can't go any lower than, you know, you, 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 you kind of stop the process from bleeding in some form or another. That's the only way I think to handle it is to look at it from the tails. Right. So, so just to bring our, the rest of our uh, listeners in on this conversation, um, can you please give us an ex- explanation of what you mean when you say the word tails? Because uh, you and I know what it means because there's an assumption that we've read in Cherto and we're, we're uh, fans of Nassim and, and, and you know, we're, we're students of probability. But the average person who's never heard of Nassim, let alone read in Cherto, when you, how would you explain to them what a fat tail is, what a thin tail is, what a tail from the left, a tail from the right? What, are, or what, what do these terms mean? So basically the, the tails are in reference to a distribution. You know, in a, in a distribution... Uh, and there's all kinds of different types of distribution, right? You you plot a bunch of data, right, and where it falls, and um, you you come up with, you know, some, you know, most people are familiar with a a Gaussian bell 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 shaped curve, and the tails are the the parts where low probability low probability events occur. Um, if you have a fat tail, that means that more of the distribution is in the farther part and not in the middle anymore. It's in the farther ends. So, for example, a biotech firm is a it, it could be a fat tail. Why? Because you know their ability to go from zero to you know a five billion dollar company is 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 low. But guess what? When they do, they represent a lot. So, basically, what a tail represents is something where. Uh, a good portion, in, in particular fat tails, where a good portion of the distribution lies. I, I think Nassim probably can do a lot better job at, at, at explaining that stuff. It's mm-hmm. like I know it in my head and I, I and I know it, but when it comes to like definitions, mm-hmm. I I understand them, but I don't. But I but I but I can't but I can't necessarily articulate them like like a like a probability guy could. Like you get one of these probability guys on here and like oh you know this is exactly what it means and right and, and so for for me i, I just look at it like a, a tail is where a small amount of data of the distribution lies right right, right. And, so so in so this that, regard how would you tie that tail concept into 
the government's approach to doing things. So where would the tail risk? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So I would, I, what I would try to do is basically limit, you have to limit the amount of money and or exposure somebody has on something. And to blindly say, well, they've accounted for that, uh, I, I think is, is, you know, does, and injustice. Another thing, the government should be the lender of last resort in the sense of putting five five trillion dollars on your balance sheet to send you know the the Fed which which the Fed has done, right? I'm not saying that there's going to be a problem, but if there is, you know, are they going to take it to ten or twenty or, or fifty or a hundred? You know, uh, you know, What's are the they upper gonna, limit? Yeah, yeah, they're going to take it. I mean, I said billion, I meant trillion. So they, <laughs> they they're going to take it to to some exorbitant amount. Right. That just increases the probability of them blowing up this entire thing. That's all I kind of think about. All I when, when I think about kind of how probability works in relationship to everything else is, hey, I just want to make sure that I don't need to necessarily know the exact probabilities. What mm -hmm. I do need to know is if if I do something, how bad am I going to be harmed? Right. That's right. that's at the so. That's what is important about fat tails. Not necessarily the definition, so right. to speak, right. but more of, hey, what it's telling you is be you're you're in a warning zone. Right. Is that this type of distribution is not what you think it is. It's something else. And to right. be very, 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 very cautious and right. to be very, very mindful of where you're at. And and, and in finance. Mo all the stuff is basically fat tailed in some version or another. They don't want to say it is, but it really is. And at some point, uh, we're going to meet in an absorbent barrier and mm. possibly be taken out of the game. Is, is so, that guaranteed? Not, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that it increases your chances. It's just like it's just like going down the road. Each mm. each 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 acceleration that you get past like 100 miles an hour, you mm -hmm. start to you start to increase your chances of death in mm -hmm. some version exponentially to the right. point where you get to, you're going fast enough. And then after, let's say 150 miles an hour, you're guaranteed to die in that accident. You know? Right. Right. And, right. And right. That's, that's what we're saying is we're just trying to figure out, Hey, if there's harm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if there's going to be harm, how bad mm -hmm. are we going to get harmed? And the only way you can do that is to have some preset number right. uh, like, traders do and say, okay, after you reach this point, you got to right. cut it off. That's why right. we have speed limits. That's why we have, uh, you know, you know, certain regulations is so, cause they understand that, Hey, listen, you know, in California, they have earthquakes. We got to right. count. That. Right. And so that, that's, that's the important part about fat tails. Not so much the definition. I mean, the definition is important, but more mm -hmm. of the idea of, Hey, are we in those? Right. Okay. We're we're in those, uh, you know. I mean, uh, then we need to be we need to be aware of that. Right. No. So so when I think about that, I, I think about it in the following terms, right? So everything scales across the universe, right? So planets have a specific size that they're allowed to grow to. The stars have a particular size. The black holes that we find have particular sizes because everything has a trade-off. So in the sense that if there was a uh, you know a meteor that comes and smacks the Earth, the, the dinosaurs supposedly got wiped off with that. But the termites and ants are doing just fine, right? Because their requirement for survival in the face of a hostile environment is a lot lower than what a uh, a dinosaur would need, because the amount of food that would be available after the first, 
you know, uh, first layer of whatever's walking around got incinerated, whatever's left to eat is not going to be enough. So even if you got, if you were that dinosaur that somehow managed to be inside a cave and were lucky enough to not be immediately killed, when you come out, you're going to starve to death because there's nothing there for you. So in the sense of it, when I look at it, and I'll, and I'll give an example of it from Ontario here, uh, we had a previous liberal government, which was just spending money um, left, right, and center, because that's what they do in, in most regards. And, and to the average person, that sounds like a good idea. Oh, the, the kids are getting free education. Oh, what are you against homeless people? Oh, what are you against this? And this kind of the smug, uh, almost uh, jubilant attitude towards the fact that the government, which has this unless supply of money, can just borrow and give everybody everything they want. And then guys like me come around, I'm like, look, I'm not against these kids getting education. What I'm against is how is the government funding this, right? Because what's going to have to happen is eventually the amount of money they borrow, they have to pay it back because the government is not just generating wealth anywhere. What the government's doing is generating the money that they put out into these programs by taxing other people. And if you borrow a lot of money and you promise everybody everything, the, the road from there to, to Venezuela to uh, North Korea is a very short one and it may be very painful. So the thing that you and I seem to be concerned about is we don't know what it looks like when the, the biggest and most wealthiest uh, uh, country on the planet is unable to pay its bills. I mean, we've seen what happens in Argentina when they weren't able to pay their bills. We've seen what happened to Russia when the, you know, the ruble collapsed. We've seen what happened um, to small states within the United States where they went sort of, quote unquote, bankrupt. But we've never actually seen the situation where the United States, not only would it harm itself, but the entire planet is synchronized, so to speak, economically to the U.S. And if the U.S. is careless about this pro prospect of, yes, we're borrowing all this money to pay off to, to build all these roads and these, these bridges, that's just fantastic, great. What's the interest rate on those borrowed monies that you're borrowing? And what happens when you can't make that money back? What happens when the next financial uh, collapse comes around and millions of people are out of jobs and the amount you could tax the people that are already currently working is at its limit and the payments have to go to somebody who lent you that money? In this particular case, it could be other countries. You know, we've seen what happened to Europe. We've seen what happens when, when and, and the euro came around, which is funny because one of my professors, his PhD thesis was on how bad the concept of the euro was. And he said, what's going to happen here is Germany is going to pay for everybody. And everybody laughed. They almost didn't give him his PhD. And I remember me and him when, when I was at school, we were talking about it. He said, I, I had to fight tooth and nail for them to even let me get my PhD because everybody was saying, this is the best thing that, that Europe has come up with. They're going to create this power to negotiate with China and the U.S. and they're going to be all this wonderful, powerful uh, uh, system. And he kept saying, okay, that's great. Um, that's what happens when every company puts the narrative out there that mergers and acquisitions are fantastic because we're going to reach economies of scale. What they never really mentioned to you is within each company, you're going to have uh, pockets of cancer and toxicity. And you're going to uh, combine that together. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a symbiosis of cancer growing within this larger entity that's just going to suck all the resources out of it. And, and oddly enough, you look at what happened in, in, in Europe and you look at what happened with regards to the, you know, the debt and the crisis. And sure enough, Germany's paying everybody's bills, right? And it, it, at a certain point, the Germans are going to say, hey, we're tired of paying everybody's bills. Uh, we want out. And when they say that, what's going to happen next? You know, that's where this whole concept of people don't understand what, what Brexit is really about Brexit is not really uh, about race or um, fascism or anything like that from as far as I can tell. What it's really about is the people in London are like, or in, in England are like, we want decisions that we control. We want the risk under our cap. And yes, we will make bad decisions, but at least there are decisions. We don't want to be under the thumb of Brussels. And so, you know, we're seeing it now in Ontario and Canada. The new government that kind of stepped into power, they're cutting everything. 
Why? Well, because the last government went into so much debt that we don't have any money left over for anything. And this new government, um, you know, good or bad is irrelevant. What's happening is the facts on the ground tell you that there is so much debt that they have to clean up for. And everybody's like, yeah, we understand there's debt, but you're, don't cut my program. Well, if, if we follow that logic, everybody's going to say the same thing. Nobody gets their programs cut. Okay, great. We're back to where we were, except it's worse now. So this cascading effect of failure after failure tends to snowball to a point where it becomes sort of insolvent. You're like, well, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, it's a 07, 08, it's a microcosm of what's kind of go on throughout the world. And, and, and ultimately, that, that was the warning shot for everybody was to get your wrist down, and, and they chose to go in the opposite direction. And uh, I, I obviously think that's a mistake, but, you know, that's what happens when people that, that that's what happens when you don't have skin in the game and when you when you make these decisions not based off of because they don't want anybody to experience any pain they were like there's no we 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 didn't account for this not one economist really i mean so, you know a couple kind of saw that 0708 thing kind of evolving but at the end of the day it, you know nobody saw what they would possibly do which was you know turn on the floodgates and in every century and, and the worst thing that could have happened was it was successful because now hmm. people believe uh now people believe oh okay we, we've got this figured out if x happens we can do y and that'll solve the problem and and and, and the reality is is it just it just creates a bigger problem i mean that's that's again my personal opinion but i, mm -hmm. I think the mistake that i i think the worst thing that could have happened coming out of 0708 was that it worked right you know, they were able to borrow the money and that that, that they were able to, to navigate it out because now we've got a bigger problem, and, and if if and when the next one hits, it's mm. going to be a real issue. Right. So so let's go back to the other question because I want to circle back around to this process. And and, and I, as you were mentioning it, I kind of chuckled. There's this uh, famous, uh, let's just call it uh, adult movie star by the name of Mia Khalifa. And the reason that's funny is because she tweeted that she had purchased some stock. And she saw the price go up, and by the time she tried to sell it to, to rein in her profits, she mm. was beaten to the punch by the quote-unquote algorithms. Right. So when, when, when we go back to your conversation about how it's hard to make a living, is that the problem you're facing, or is there more to it than meets the eye? It's just, you're just dealing with a lot of machines. You're dealing with a lot of complexity. You're dealing with a lot of stuff out there. And at the end of the day, um, active managers... Uh, are failing left and right because uh, people have kind of come to the realization that it's just very tough to, you're either fighting against the high frequency traders, the algorithms, um, in some form or another. Um, Can we just expand, what, what is a high frequency trading algorithm? A high what frequency is it supposed trader to is, is, is somebody, he, 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 for lack of a better term, he, he makes money off of uh, the speed of the transaction and he doesn't necessarily care about the direction. What he tries to do is get a jump on uh, what he sees order flow coming in based off of uh, the signals. And uh, I, I think that the, the um, I think the the idea of how high frequency traders, because there's there's different types, but basically they use speed to front run uh, orders that are coming through the system is the, in in the simplest terms. Now they may say that they don't do that. It's they call it latent latency arbitrage or something like that. And basically, what they're doing is they're taking advantage of the the amount of time mm -hmm. that it takes for one trade to go from 
the broker to the floor back to the broker. And mm. they, they, they front run that in some version or another. How and, would they do that? Huh? How would they do this? They do it basically. That's what all that. That's what all that copper wire being laid from Chicago to, or wherever they laid it from Chicago to New York. They were they were basically trying to get a straight line and 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 they and they do it by speed and mm -hmm. and they got and what they do is they that's why they put the the servers next to the to the New York Stock Exchange because they want to be the because time matters to them. Right. So when an order comes in, right. it has to go a particular way. And they just front run it, and, and and it's no, they don't want to admit it, but it's no different than front running. They're like, well, they're just taking advantage of the time. I'm like, that's front running. I mean, it, it because and, and people say, well, how do you how do you define it as front running? Well, would you trade if that order didn't come through? No, that's front running. Got that it. by the 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 order itself uh, triggers a transaction based off the high frequency trader. How is this legal? It's not it, it, well because they 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 make this argument to the SEC or to whoever regulates this and says yeah okay well it's 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 cool I I saw it in 03 when I was trading I saw it I started seeing it in stocks where I'd highlight I'd highlight uh so think about looking at a computer screen and I you could literally highlight and select uh, everybody that you wanted to buy or sell shares from and then it would it would it would pop up a dialog box. And you would look at it and you say, okay, that's 130,000 shares. So I'm, I, my expectation is I'm going to get 130,000 shares. Let's say I'm going to take the offering, which is I'm going to buy all that stock that is offered at, let's say, a penny. And I, and I highlight all the penny you know, offerings. And then I hit go or select or whatever the, the word was. And it would go send an electronic signal to uh, the servers, wherever they may be. And then back to me, and I, it would show me how many I bought. Well, I started seeing really weird numbers. And this was like in 03, 04. So this stuff has been going on for years. And I would highlight 120, and I'd only get like 30. And I'd be like, what the, f you know? <laughs> and of course, nobody's really talking about it, right? It's, right. It, it's all kind of cloak and dagger stuff. And it's like, you know, you don't start hearing. I didn't really start hearing the explanation till 2011, 12. Well, I think it was going on then, but I, I, I couldn't be for sure. But but something was going on back then where where we were we were basically getting front run. We right. they were they, they they somehow bought those shares right. that I scooped uh, mm. that I tried to to highlight and select, and mm. I'd always end up with a I would never very seldom would I get the full allocation that I had highlighted in right, some right, right. In, in some form or another, and and they do some really sophisticated stuff. What they also do is I, I it's I can't remember the term, but it's basically it's they jam you, and right. what they do is they cancel and then resubmit, cancel and resubmit, cancel and resubmit. So you cannot access the market when you're trying to do these transactions. And and again, this is all very fast, and we're talking about milli milliseconds and mi microsecond and all this other noise. It's like oh okay, well, that's way out outside of my uh, my my comprehension. So all I know is it's wrong. Uh, I don't, you know, only way to fix it is if, but they're making so much money off the rebates because they're posting and, and doing all this other stuff that it, it's more beneficial to basically keep them around. See, it sounds to me like there's, there's this per, uh, perfect analogy that comes to mind. There's this episode of The Simpsons where um, uh, Mr. Burns is sitting at a baseball game and he, and he orders, uh, you know, uh, sorry, it's the mayor. He orders beer and hot dogs 
and between the guy who's serving the beer and the hot dogs and, and the mayor is Homer, and he takes a bite out of everything that passes through. Right. So you paid for, for a full hot dog, but you got one with half the bite taken out. And so what you thought would be nourishing and, and filling for you is all of a sudden no longer there because you calculated on your spreadsheet that I need to buy this many shares at this price to be profitable. Right. But before you can even put the transaction through, they've already swiped all the cream off the top of it. Well, and, and this is the deal. They basically, uh, they won't do it. They won't do anything until you send your order. So they're wow. not going to even, and, and, and that's where I think the illegal element comes in is if, if they were doing it constantly, then I'd be like, yeah, okay. But when they only do it, when you send over orders, mm -hmm. that to me is a form of front running. Now, again, this is where the legal guys get, you know, uh, that, that have one over on us in the sense of, hey, it's a way you define things. It's a way you articulate them. Right. Uh, and they're just very good at that stuff. And, and so they're like, well, it's not really considered front running because of this, this, and this reasons. And, right. and, it, and, and, it, and it comes down to definitions and 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 uh, and how they frame things. And at the end of the day, I'm like, you can go, you, you guys can call it what you want, but at the end of the day, it's front running. I mean, uh, you, you, those guys aren't doing anything until until I until I activate uh, a tra a transaction, and and that in and of itself is, is is to me a form of front running. That's the way I frame it. So it sounds uh, to I, me like it's like it's like a group of trolls with a bridge ready to go. They're just waiting for you to see which yeah. direction you're gonna go to work, yeah. and they set up their bridge. And you can choose to not go, but they're only going to set up the bridge the minute you decide which direction you're going to take. That's exactly that's 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 an excellent analogy. It's exactly what they do. And, wow. and the people don't realize at the end of the day, if the if the argument is, well, it's only you know one one hundredth of a penny, right? But they do a gazillion transaction, so it turns out to be real money. Oh, right. I've I've had some experience with that because uh, I've had um, opportunities to do some consulting work with some um, uh, financial. Uh, uh, companies that do trading and, and one of the things I learned which was kind of scary for me because uh, I come from an, uh, a standpoint of um, For every feature you add there's at least five things that can go wrong because the feature you're adding is the thing that people can see It's the tip of the iceberg. That's what they love but underneath that you need to set that foundation. So in programming lingo there's this concept called um, uh, uh, Creating a uh, a set of functions that are actually mathematically proven to be correct. So in essence, this is how the NSA makes sure that their their transactions with the data that they send back and forth is actually handled properly. Because right. what ends up happening is we write the code and it has a contract. The contract says, before I even start executing this thing you want me to do, I need the following two things. Before the execution happens, I need to make sure that these pieces of data are set. And then I will perform the transaction. And before I give you the response back, I'm going to run a check against that. And so what ends up happening is uh, you add two layers of delay between what you wanted to happen and what actually happened. And so the, you know, it's a mathematically proven way of writing the, uh, the, the software. And what people don't really realize is that uh, when you do that, you're, you're, you're testing for correction. But the guys I was talking to in the, um, you know, downtown on uh, Bay Street, they were looking for the other, the other route. They're saying, okay, is there a way that you could structure your data uh, for the pipeline in terms of the requests we're sending over the wire to get information to be more efficient. And what they're asking you for in that regard and the way they're asking you for it is they're saying, look, we want the smallest amount of data to send over the wire to get the maximum uh, insight that we can get over the wire from the other side. And for that to happen, you have to strip 
forget your 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 you know um, mathematically proven way of doing doing the function correctly. No, no, no. We're not even about that. What we need you to do is we need you to just uh, cut a couple of corners and get it even faster to us. And so what ends up happening is, and these guys have this particular ability to uh, a uh, write the programs that do it that way, but b they actually influence the uh, the creators of the programming language. So if you go to uh, YouTube and you listen to some C++, which is essentially what high frequency trading desks are all, uh, all their software is written in that because it's like as close to bare metal as you can get. Right. And they and they get their their fine tuned uh, PCs. Uh, you know, like their their CPU is actually very uh, fine tuned in a particular way. The memory right. they use is very fine tuned. There's uh, sometimes there's, there's no real error corrections built in because there's a trade off. The trade off is: do you want the information correct or do you want the information fast? Right, and it kind of ties into that whole idea of of clickbait. Do you want the story handled correctly or do you want the story to be first that you break it? And so I'm, I'm noticing the same pattern across multiple. Um, uh, planes of, of business in the sense that I, I, I remember a few years back when Toyota had their car that was basically um, you know uh, out of control and, and the reason it was out of control is because the software was not built in such a way to as uh, do what's called you know design by contract in the sense of building bug free software bug free is a really complicated term to use but essentially what was happening was I said we want this information about how the car uh, operates to be as quick as possible so that when the, uh, you know, the, we can drive it off the lot and we can make our sales and we can stay competitive with Honda and all those things. And people are looking at that saying, okay, that's, that sort of story seems to be a one-off. That's what people think. But what, then you look at what happened to Boeing, same thing, right? There, there's there's a, a principle of adding a feature without actually making sure the foundation is, is robust. And, 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 and most of the times, uh, software is a whole new world for this. And so when I look at this and I, and I, and I, and I pay attention to what you just said about high frequency trading, so you, you, you create the incentive of uh, set up these trolls to put up bridges for transactions between people and the, and the stocks they want to buy that they've done all their research for. That's a fast way to get information and money. Cool. Do that. Now you set up an entire army of various banks doing the same thing because they start to see one bank is making profit off this strategy another bank's not going to want to be left out of the loop. But as you do this, you're stripping more and more of the essence of what's required for that transaction on top of the fact that you're not putting in safety barriers. So when I see an algorithmic crash, which I'm sure you can speak to, I, I kind of harks back to this whole idea. Like what's happening here is we've really uh, tried to optimize for speed of information being transmitted versus correctness. And the more we do this, uh, the worst the cascading failure will be when it does actually come around to it. So if you can speak to that, we'd be uh, uh, very happy to hear your personal experiences on that front. Well, I think you hit upon a point of of, uh, of one of my trigger words, which was optimization, right? The whole this whole thing about uh, optimization and and the impact in markets and so forth and so on. Uh, it's like everything else. You you just eventually reach upper limits. And you have to accept those things for what the, what they are. As you, I don't think most people realize this, but they're literally. I I just saw uh, one of the guys tweeted about um, uh, spreads and how they take a long time to basically compress over time throughout the day in equity markets. And now, what a spread is basically uh, the difference between the bid and the ask. The bid being where somebody's willing to buy. The 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 ask is where somebody's willing to sell. Okay. And they said, they said what, what happens initially is 
it's very wild on the opening and then it kind of converges into a, uh, you know, into, uh, onto a number and, and it stays at that number for the last three hours. Well, what most people don't realize is a lot of the transactions that, and this is kind of an interesting kind of technical part, most of the transactions when I was working were done through what they call VWAP, which is volume weighted price, uh, volume, volume weighted average price. Okay. And what that basically means is if you give me an order, uh, uh, and Fidelity started this back in the 1998s, 99s, kind of took off. And it was a way to measure kind of the trader and how he did as far as his price was concerned. So what they do is they timestamp when they came in. And let's say they came in at 11 a.m. and they're like, hey, have this, buy 100,000 shares of IBM uh, at, um, from 11 to noon, okay? And okay. And then come back and give me a price. So I go out and I buy the, you know, I and, and you can choose however you want to do it, right? You want to, you know, buy 5,000 shares every, you know, five minutes or whatever, or every 10 minutes, you know, 10,000 shares every, you know, five minutes or some version of that, right? So you come up with the way you want to do it. Okay. And then, and then they would go back and they'd say, they would look at all the trades that were done from 11 to noon and find out how far you were away from the average price, the volume weighted average price, how much stock traded, at what price, and whether or not you beat the VWAP. So you'll see a lot of terminology where people will talk about beating the VWAP. Mm. And what they don't realize is most of these algorithms are all designed about uh, the optimization of an average price over the course of a day. Mm. And so what you're starting to see now is the day doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. Where it really starts to count is basically in the last two hours of the day. That's why you're starting to see all this craziness go along because that's where all the volumes because that's where all the volumes getting traded, and it basically trades almost in the last hour of the day. So when it comes to a VWAP, most people are starting to gravitate towards this idea of the last hour in the day because that's where all the action. Is. Hmm. And, and so when it comes to trading. It's not as simple as, hey, did you get a good price? Now it's like it's the optimization of how good the price was because mm. you're compared against an average. And the simple fact is, and I did VWAPs at, uh, for buybacks at Wells Fargo. They're brutal. They're, mm. they're, I won't say they're impossible, but they're impossible to beat. Now, some people would say, oh, well, we do it. Nah, yeah, whatever. That's, that's a bunch of noise. Mm. Very, it's very, 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 very difficult to beat the VWAP. You can come close to it, but if you're beating it, you're not optimizing the best way to do it and because they volume weight the, the algorithm and all this other stuff. They mm -hmm. don't look at price. They look at volume and where volume trades and at what time it trades. And then they break it down into individual increments. And, and so it's turned into this. It, it, it's, a, it's, again, measuring against some average. Everything right. is turned into an optimization of measuring to some average. And that's how come this all gets – that's how come you see this market get kind of like like it doesn't seem to move around a lot because everybody is kind of doing the same thing. The real question is, and all, which leads me to believe that at some point we will get a, an, an epic dislocation of some sort in one direction or another, either up or down. Obviously, I would probably think down, but you know, uh, up is also – very possible. So 
I, I just think that this this convergence of uh, or this idea of optimization and this convergence to a, a number ha has squeezed out everything to where you can't make any mistakes. And I, I think what we have to do is what tolerance gives you is the idea that you can make a state mistake and not in, in you know in the system. And I, I I think that's where 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 we're going down where where it's very dangerous, which is. We're all looking at the average. We're all trying to beat, you know, the average in, or trying to optimize the average in some form or another. And instead of just saying, hey, let people kind of do what they want to be doing and we'll we'll manage things as they go along. But uh, I understand it. It's it's the it's the proliferation of mathematics and probability theory and, and, and this stuff. And and they and they get very good at it and they're very smart guys. And that's that's the way they approach it. So. This idea of VWAP and its kind of foothold into this has changed how, how markets are traded and along with the algorithms. So the question I would have to, uh, to ask on this front is, um, so first I want to just define a term for our listeners. It's the idea of, uh, of arbitrage. So if, if there's a price that you could buy it at in New York that happens to be lower than the price somebody's willing to pay for it in, in Toronto, you buy it right. in New York, you sell it in Toronto. So the, That's the whole... Yeah, so that that so because the question people always ask is, okay, why would I buy a stock if somebody's selling it to me? Obviously, they must mean they don't see something in it that I do. But I always try to remind them, I'm like, okay, there's time horizons at play here. There may be a gentleman who is going through a uh, a significant change in his portfolio, or he wants to cash out and go live off uh, on some island. So he's ready to sell. He's already made his profit, and that's what you're buying into. It's not that the, every time because there's this weird notion that people have that. Every time somebody's selling a stock, it must mean that they don't believe in it anymore. And that's not always true. The, the, the truth of the matter could be a lot more complex in the sense that it could be that this person's just ready to tap out. Uh, they've made all their money. They don't care anymore. Or this person has a financial emergency. For whatever reason there may be, you're ready to go in and to buy it. So, th so that's where the arbitrage opportunities come up. And, and, and what I wanted to ask you is, would there be a way to do this? So that Because what I'm starting to notice from our conversation here is, you have accelerated problems in the sense that if you're optimizing for speed of information retrieval to do these volume trades as you said it, what you're doing is you're also doing this at, 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 at higher levels. So in the sense that you're not buying, the, this algorithm you're competing against is not buying 100,000 shares. This algorithm is going to probably try to buy every piece that it can at a strike price that it thinks is valuable. Am I correct on that front? Yeah, you're correct. And in fact, you actually see the, you, you see the data points. What, what, what do you think? That's exactly what a flash crash is. Right, right, a right. A flash right. crash is, is they've compressed the time to milliseconds, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the system breaks for a, 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 a millisecond or mm -hmm. a, a second, and you got right. real problems. Right, right, right. This whole thing is about speed mm -hmm. and, and, and size and volume. And at some point, it, you know, it's that, you know, I, I think about the uncertainty principle, right? right? You can't, you can't have both, right? right. You can have one or the other, but right. you can't have both. And, 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 and that kind of spins into the idea of, hey, that's a great example of how physics helps us because it gives us a different lens to look through. I don't necessarily love the adoption of all the terms. Right. Uh, I think it's, it gets to the point of ridiculous. Um, right. But at the same time, it, wh where this stuff all helps you is, it just helps you look through the, the world through a different lens. Right. And that's at the crux of what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at all this stuff that we're, uh, whether or not it's risk or return mm -hmm. or speed or this or that, is, hey, how many different ways can you measure speed? Okay, right. well, 
you know, acceleration and momentum and then, and then, and we can go through all these. And, and, and so that is where I think, uh, it helps us. My, my, my big grind with all this is what I have found is they turn it into a weapon. Right. Instead of being like, okay, that's pretty cool. We can measure it 19 different ways. They're like, okay, how can we profit on that? And then, <laughs> we, can, we can, we can front run these guys. Really? Right. Right. But then eventually the conversation turns, turns into the following footing, right? So I'm Goldman Sachs. I'm, I'm doing this and you're JP Morgan and you're doing that. And you know, uh, other people are, so now you got this, 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 sort of situation where you got like a bunch of superpowers in the sense that they're banks with investment arms that are doing this, doesn't it kind of cancel itself out or are they all just picking a different spot where they can actually deploy their algorithms more effectively? And so therefore they're sucking the oxygen out of the markets on wherever front you go, somebody's a top dog there. It's not like one dog is basically owning the entire market. Is it, this is my ignorance speaking, so please clarify if I, if I misspoke. No, actually what, what's happened is those, those areas of that, that world has shrunk. Even the high-frequency trader guys are starting to have troubles, right? The algorithmic traders are having troubles because you reach an upper limit where everybody's right. playing the same game. The exactly. math doesn't change, right? And, and, right? and people are always like, oh, well, you know, it, it's – remember in 2011, uh, Goldman went after that high-frequency or the guy that wrote the code, and they basically have been torching him for the last eight or nine years. I can't remember Yeah, his the name. poor Russian guy. Yeah, I remember, yeah I know the exactly Russian guy. About. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Slam dunking that guy, right? Yeah. Well, my question is, why would Goldman Sachs go out? I mean, I agree with uh, Michael Lewis, who wrote that article, is, hey, why are they going after this guy? And then that led him into, you know, that the whole high-frequency trader stuff. Um, and and it comes down to this, is, yes, they do, but that window closes fast. Because once everybody kind of gets, the, the, then the, then guess what happens? The arbitrage goes away. That's what, you know. And, and then you're moving on to the next thing. Okay, what's the next thing that we can kind of profit from? Now, there's a really a bunch of smart guys out there, and they'll come up with something. And, and, and so that's the way I look at it is what happens? It converges to zero, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, then there's no, and then there's no spread on the thing, and there's no way to make a profit, and people go and find something else. Right. You know? and, and, and you go down these roads of, uh, of okay, Go squeeze all the money out of that. Okay, we've done that. Go squeeze all the money out of that. They've done that. And they just keep going down these roads. And that's why they'll pay somebody an exorbitant amount of money if they can come up with a new creative way. And I use the word in quotations, creative. <laughs> creative way to hijack the system and try to squeeze it for more money. Because, right. you know, and, and at the end of the day, it's always about one thing. Somebody is trying to figure out a way to arbitrage something. Right. Right. The last right. Was, the last one was time. Now right. they're trying to figure out how to arbitrage something else. Why? Because everybody loves risk-free transactions. Oh, of course. Because from what I could see here, like, um, uh, and there's this new trend that I, I can instantly, instantly see. I know somebody at Goldman is probably already doing this. But um, if you notice how Google released their own uh, TPU, which was a um, TensorFlow processing unit for their machine learning algorithms, right? They built their own. They open sourced it. They got version 2 and version 3 coming up. And Apple has their version of it on the iPhone, and Tesla's got their version of it that they're basically going out to uh, to ARM, licensing out the uh, particular uh, intellectual property of it, getting their their PhD mathematicians and, and physicists to say, okay, solve this problem on this particular plane, and they go back to Shenzhen in China and they say, hey, we want this chip. Now I could see somebody at Goldman or at J.P. Morgan doing exactly that, saying, okay, I want a chip that's optimized for this particular set of problems that it has to do with trading. So we've, we've got the time issue, 
let's take a look at another angle. What else is available for us to arbitrage? And the question that leads to us is, is the following. This is just one tiny slice of the market, right? We're just talking about trading stocks. There's obviously, there's bonds. Right. There's, there's, there's other, other financial instruments that are being passed around. So the question is this. Would it be better if we actually separated the markets and said, okay, look, clearly these guys sucked all the oxygen out of the air and, and we can't have normal relations with this with the system anymore because nobody really understands it. And one, uh, one of my heroes is, um, is uh, a guy who created the Erlang programming language who just recently passed away. So, uh, you know, condolences to Joe, Earl, uh, Joe Armstrong's family. But his idea was very simple. He goes, uh, if you can't have one person in a room who can explain to you from A to Z what's happening in the system, that's a system nobody understands because what's exactly. going to happen is you're going to create hidden risks, as Nassim would say, and some team is going to do something a little bit sloppy and it's going to get hidden under the rug and it's not going to show up until a series of number of events kind of coalesce around itself. And what's funny about that is that we have X number of planets that orbit around our sun. They all orbit at different speeds, different uh, you know, uh, distances, but there is a time, however long it takes, where they all line up perfectly. And when that perfect storm happens, you will see... Uh, like you said, a flash crash. So now we know that this 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 high frequency trading uh, angle, what they're going after. We know that there's somebody probably building a TPU and a machine learning algorithm to optimize for the next particular, as you said, angle to squeeze. Uh, uh, in, in my country, they say squeeze oil out of the penny. Uh, and we know that this is all going to happen. The question is this: What can we do as an overall uh, group of people to say, hey, uh, we think we're optimizing too much here, and that's putting the financial um, uh, safety of everybody uh, at risk here, because now what's what's really happening here, and what you're describing to me, and I'm I'm sure our our, our savvier listeners uh, have already caught on to this, is basically what they're really telling you is if you want to make money, you better be uh, inside Goldman's uh, portfolio. Let them do the trading on your behalf, so that way you can leverage all this computational capabilities. Because if you go into it as a as a as a solo person, you're trying to manage your own money. Uh, you may they may let you go for a while just until you know oh look I'm a, I'm a trader I'm savvy I made a couple hundred thousand until the day comes when that algorithm sees you and says yeah I'll just you know take him out at his knees on my way to where I'm going and so the incentive seems to be misaligned in the sense that the the, the financial industry as a, as, as a whole and now that it's global we got the you know this is all happening not only in, in, in the US you got you know people in China doing it you know you got the the Europeans involved that eventually it's going to get to a point where we're going to have to just perhaps rethink how we do all this. And we don't want to lose the benefits of the convenience that the technology brought, but we want to take away this, this, this foolish assumption of optimization. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, at the end of the day, you, you, you attack it basically through the rules and the regulations in some form or another. Now, here's the problem. Lawyers and um, bankers and very creative traders will come 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 up with ways to bend the rules, go around the regulations, or they'll just flat out break them. Right. So, you know, uh, I'll go back to the Madoff thing. Hey, <laughs> guy gave me the answers to the test and they still couldn't get it right. right. So, so here's a, here's an opaque problem where we're not really sure what's kind of going on. Mm. Uh, all we know is that it, it, there seems to be something cooking. It, it, it it's a very complex problem that, probably should be handled at the rules side. But, mm. uh, but again, constantly, you know, uh, there's not enough money for the regulators to really do what they need to do. And, and so I, I'm not really that sure mm. uh, what you can do. I would probably lean towards the idea of letting it 
for lack of a better term, trade. And what I mean by that is let the system correct itself. You know, make sure that if it does blow up, it doesn't contaminate anything else. Now, mm. is that difficult? Yeah, it is difficult. Mm. But I, I don't think government should be in the business of basically involved in the markets. It's right. a lot like a referee playing in the game. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. So I think the biggest thing you have to do is to take a step back and say, okay, since we really can't, we can't catch all the variables and figure out all the crimes that everybody's going to make, what we're going to do is just, you know, have some very general rules and let the system kind of trade itself and, and hopefully we can, we can kind of keep our arms around this. Because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. when they do make regulations, yeah. most of the time they make things worse. Yeah. Uh, in some form or another, it's like they, they you know, somebody figures out a way to jerry-rig it and, and get around the regulation, either mm. through legal means or mm. through creative innovations or something along those lines. There's a lot of smart people out there. And, yeah. and, no. and you, you made it very difficult to, to get around that. And, and so people, oh, as you said that, I was just reminded of Michael Driver. Shout out to our friend Michael uh, from the RWR yeah. guys. Uh, he said that it's Darwinian for nature to find a way around anything, right? So if there's a if there's a crocodile that uh, you know has cavity problems, there's gonna be a little bird that's gonna fly in his mouth and eat whatever's around there, sure. and the alligator won't eat the bird because it needs the bird, right? So whatever rule you come up with, somebody's gonna figure out a way around it. But that brings up an interesting notion because, as you know, in sport, um, it's not only the referee, right? The referee's on the field, but there's actually a whole governing situation behind right. it to say, hey. You know, how about you don't take steroids so that, you know, you, you, you keep the sport, uh, quote unquote, clean. So it turns to this cat and mouse game where no matter where we try to sort of fix a set of rules. And the problem with setting rules is that a rule, by definition, is a extrapolation on past experience. Right. So everybody said, oh, when you get on the planes, uh, we need to make sure that there's a, uh, a safety latch and you can't really talk to the captain. Nobody thought about what happens if a guy rushes into the um, uh, the cabin and kills the captain and just slams the plane into the into the, into the tower. That's something yeah. nobody thought of because past experience never told you about what the future event was going to hold. So now you have the situation where I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but if you get on a plane, that little cart that they pass back and forth, that's meant to be a barrier between you and getting into the cockpit. Plus the fact that there's a marshal sitting somewhere that you don't know about, and there's one uh, and uh, one of the or two of the flight attendants are actually trained to physically attempt to stop you before you get to the uh, to the front because they know that once you get in, everybody dies, right? So the price they pay is she will claw your face out if she has to or he will try to punch you as hard as he can just to stop you long enough so that when the pilot gets back into the cockpit that he can slam that door shut and there's no way in hell you're getting in there. So you, you get this world where that's a byproduct of looking at a, a slice of a problem from one angle, but then it, it percolates down the rest of the scene because now to go anywhere, you have to literally get to the airport at least four hours before your flight because you have to go through all these checks and barriers and, and that adds accumulated costs in terms of what the travel looks like and you know businesses are like, you know what, we used to fly people out now that there's just too much hassle, I have to pay a guy for a whole day and he's spending half of it waiting in line, let's just do everything through Skype. Well, now that creates a problem for the flight, uh, for the airline business because the cascading effect of a correction in one spot almost always invariably shows up as a defect in another spot. So this complexity of it is kind of, this is why I love this, these conversations, right? So risky conversations has always been about, can we look at this from multiple angles? And can we say, okay, 
everybody who says things like, you know what, we need to regulate free speech on Facebook, or we need to regulate the bankers, or we need to do this, or we need to do that. It's like, okay, sure. Have you thought this through? And how far have you thought it through? And, 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 I'm, and I'm sorry to break this to you, but the best you can do is to anticipate replication of problems you've already seen in the past. You will never see the kind of genius who's going to figure out a way around it in the future. So given that, it goes back to our conversation initially, which is how about you don't put yourself in a position where you can blow up, right? Don't leverage yourself. Don't go get a degree in some field that has absolutely no value while incurring a massive amount of debt so you can serve, uh, you know, coffee or french fries uh, as a full-time job post your degree in service of that debt. Don't, don't swipe the credit card for everything you need. Don't, um, you know, don't borrow money to buy a stock because your friend says it's going to go up three times in value. So I think given all these opaque factors of the system, that seems to be the best bet. And of course, you know, read your Encerto, read, read uh, Nassim and, and you know, talk to the guys that are on the RWR. And I will put the links, guys, in the, in the uh, description of this podcast of all the, the people who are actually looking at this problem from multiple angles so that we can actually uh, bridge the gap between the reality of what's happening the, the, and, and the, the approach to taking against that reality. Because there's no optimal solution here. There's just minimizing harm. There's just a convexity uh, conversation here is how do I bound my losses? How do I make sure that, as you said, if I lose my job for two years, six months, whatever the case is, that I don't end up just blowing up, right? I don't want to go break bad as Walter White would do and start selling meth uh, on the street just because I need to pay off some bills. Right. Right. So how, how, would you, how would you see this uh, sort of, unf- like we're only into this, what, since the 70s till now? Uh, that's not even 100 years, right? Like we've only been doing this for so long. Well, how is this going to sort of play out in your perspective into the future? Where's, where's all this trading going? Where's all these uh, you know, high-frequency stuff going? Where's all this regulation going to come from? And how come um, these conversations aren't being had as much as we would like them to be had? Because it's not in anybody's financial interest. At the end of the day, and I, and I kind of feel this way, is it's very hard to get paid for negative advice. It's very hard to tell people, hey, don't do that. I mean, because if it, it was, I mean, go to the doctor. You know, what do they give you? They give you pills. Why? Because at the end of the day, people know when they leave, if they were to say, hey, just go exercise or go walk around and, you know, cut back on your color, you know, your calorie intake. Nobody does that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, some people do, but, but we're talking about the masses, you know, right. don't overspend. What do, what do they do? They overspend. So the information lies in what people actually do versus what they say they're going to do. That's why it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't behoove us to sit there and analyze what people are saying. And the behavioral mm-hmm. finance, or the behavioral guys um, who have been, for lack of a better term, not discredited, but discredited, uh, would lead to the idea that, uh, you know, or what I lead to is, hey, I don't really care what people are, or say what they're going to do. I just watch what they do. Mm-hmm. And that tells me everything I need to know. And right. so... Um, you know, trying to, trying to, to do these things, uh, in, in human nature and, in I mean, look at, look at, look at prisons. They're full. Why? Right. Cause guys try to break the rules. They, they don't follow the rules. And, and, and then there are people that don't follow the rules, but don't get caught. And so at the end of the day, it's guys are going to break the rules. Uh, mm-hmm. and guys are going to try to make a lot of money. Why? Cause they're motivated to do it. And, you know, trying to, to figure out, oh, you know, what are the ways that we can, it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult because at the end of the, because one of the things you run into is 
if you put a if you put a, a you know a parameter on outside you know that's not a catastrophic parameter and just say hey you can't do this because we don't want you to do that it's like oh okay you're starting to to breach into to privacy stuff and telling people what to do and how to do it mm. and that's what you're running into is this this I, I call it the optimization of life. Mm. It's everybody wants to tell you, you know, how to work out, how to do, th you know, what to eat, how to eat, and so on and so on. And I'm not saying that up to a point, yeah, but it's the optimization of that stuff that that is that any better than, you know? And it's like, well, as long as it doesn't become my problem, I don't want to pay for the guy who's been, you know, completely out of control and and is now going to go to the hospital because he has he's been misbehaving. And then right. how do you say, well, we're not going to treat that guy. We're only going to treat the guys that where, and so you've got this really big complex issue as far as allowing people to do what they want to do. But at the same time, you know, uh, you know, not letting their risk get transferred onto the individual for, for their misbehavior, uh, right. or, or their lack of, uh, ability to contain themselves, right? You, you right. Hit the gym or, or eating the right meals or so forth and so on. Right. So, um, it, it's a, it's, it's a complex issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think the complexity guys are probably a lot better at it than I am. I, I would always just kind of go from the tails side and say, listen, you can kind of do what you want, mm -hmm. but if you blow up, you know, you, you, you're going to stay blowed up and you're going to have to hit the reset button and, and fix it yourself. Now, how do you, you know, and, and then, and then what happens? People mm. go, well, we can't let them do that. And so th th then you say, well, we can't let them fail or we can't do that. So you just got this constant, um, conundrum of, of things kind of going against each other and nothing seems to get resolved. You have one guys on the one side going, optimize the world, right? Hit the mm -hmm. gym, eat right, do what you're supposed to be doing, go, go do your job. You got the other guys that are like, yeah, I'm going to pile drive, uh, you know, cigarettes left and right, and I'm, I'm going to have poor diet, and, and I'm never going to see the gym, and I'm going to do whatever the hell I – so it, it, it's like, well, is that is that guy over here, you know, unless you mandate it, you're, and then you say, okay, well, you, you, you want to be told, you know, no, no big sodas and all that other stuff, and mm. I don't know the answer. I really don't. I just know it's a big problem, and and I don't know how how you solve it other than to say, I, I I allow people to leave it to their own devices as long as they don't risk transfer, mm -hmm. um, from a uh, from a a micro to a macro. I mean, right. like you know, like like uh, what uh, the government can do, right? Those, right. You, you got a few guys that are controlling these. Uh, mass 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 exposure and risk to everybody else. It's like that has to be uh, contained. The individual risk of what people do, uh, you're gonna have to. I, I don't know the answer. Is, is 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 the best way I can say it is. I'm not sure what the right answer is because I'm not a big fan of telling people what to do or how to do it. Uh, right. No, I, I, I like. To, yeah, I like to let them try to figure it out for themselves. And and and. And, and say, hey, the only thing I can do for people is to mm. do what we're doing right now is to share my processes. Hey, this is how I did it. Right. These were my results. That's why I really talk about what what I did wrong versus what I did right mm -hmm. because I, uh, you, you, you want people to try to avoid the pain stuff. Right. But at the end of the day, it's like, hey, this is how I did it. This is, you know, th that's the best thing I can do for somebody. 
I, I'm just not very good at telling people what to do and how to do it. Right. So, well, I think we're dancing. Happened. We're dancing around the issue here. I think. I think Nassim sort of uh, literally leaned the book after this. It's like we have to get people's skin in the game on this, right? That's right. So, so I find this fascinating because three things happened recently that I can speak to that are literally reflective of this issue. So the first one was I was in the hospital with my um, uh, family members and, you know, somebody was going through some procedures and I got to talking to the staff because that's usually the kind of thing I do is I walk around and I see who's interesting and, and what I can talk about. And um, there's a gentleman there who suffers from a number of problems and one of them happens to be um, schizophrenia, but he's very well known in this hospital. Right. So what made it interesting is all the staff know him. So I, I found that a curious anomaly. I'm like, OK, uh, my doctor my mom's doctor, my, you know, uh, the nurses, they know me because I'm here for this particular incident, but they're going to forget me in about a week, right? Hopefully. Um, but this gentleman, they knew him. And not only did they know him, all the, all the uh, cleaning services staff knew him, the doctors knew him, the, even some of the paramedics, and even some of the police officers who happened to come in to the hospital on a regular basis all knew him. And, and I, I kind of asked, I said, well, how come everybody knows this guy, right? And they said, oh, uh, you know, years and years of him always constantly being brought back here. So I thought about that. I said, okay, so here's a situation where uh, a person who is a repeat uh, user of this particular service, i.e. Uh, a medical emergency service, is a burden onto the system because we need to figure out a way to help this gentleman so that he's alleviating the expensive cost of what happens inside a a hospital, so that you're not paying for the ER uh, nurse and ER um, doctor's salary to take care of this gentleman. What we should really look at is say, okay, there's a group of people, and almost always because the power law holds true, is that there's a subset of, 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 of patients um, who suffer from almost repeat conditions that keep coming into the hospital, and they drive 80% of the costs, right? So, so if we could find all the, and, and he was just one anomaly, and, I'm, and, I, and I know I'm, I'm going to get skewered for this. It's not an extrapolation or a generalization. It is simply an observation. And I suggested it to the doctor. I said, you know, if, if this guy's problem appears to be mental health, why don't you guys just kind of get him into an environment where this is the primary concern that they're treating because he's okay. He leaves and then he's, you know, reverts back to his, you know, uh, whatever state or condition his mental uh, acuity pushes him down to. And then all of a sudden he hurts himself. He hurts a couple of people around them. And then the ambulance has to go and the cops have to get involved. You guys have to bring him here. And then he has to get his tests and he has to get his meds and whoever he hurt along the line. Like I said, that seems like it's an extrapolated cost that's external to what, what actually is happening here. If you just took this gentleman, and he said, okay, given that these are his problems and given that when we don't pay attention to him, the costs just sort of uh, balloon exponentially, why don't we try to take him to a spot where the mental health is the primary issue and we, we deal with it from that front? And the doctor kind of looked at me and um, he, had these, uh, he had this flash of insight and then he had the burden of the bureaucracy around him sort of slap him in the face. And he said, everything you're saying makes sense. The problem is, the minute you try to make any kind of moves in that direction, it appears like you're uh, cold and callous and uncaring because when that information hits the average person, they don't know about the full context of what you just described. All they hear is, gentleman showed up with mental health. Uh, instead of being helped, he's being shipped away to some asylum. And that's the, the narrative that they're going to chase. And as you and I have discussed, narratives become toxic and poison very, very quickly depending on the angle of it. So this is an issue, again, where there's no skin in the game. The people who are uh, administering this hospital, in a sense, if you look at it in a very uh, skewed way, they're actually incentivized to keep this going because they can justify the cost of their hospitals remaining open. Because a lot of hospitals in this area that I'm in, a couple of them had to close down. But 
if you have constant turnover of all these people being used because this one particular person happens to be using the service and of course it's one guy but the example extrapolates itself naturally you can kind of see that their incentives are well why should we really fix that side of it when our job is to fix this side of it and this side of it happens to be benefiting from us ignoring the real issue you see what i'm saying yeah. here no, so I know. Yeah, and 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 I think you you you're, you're kind of keying into this. Is that's just one guy? Yeah, that's you, just you, one guy. That's just one guy. So that's that's what you start running into is is you know be, people being told what to do, how to do it, and then and then of course you're going to have people come in and say, well, you know, he has rights and so forth and so on, and and, and they're right. So the answer is, I just don't know. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I know it from the. I, I can always look through things from a trading sense uh, uh, standpoint, but right. I know when it comes to to public policies and things of that nature, mm -hmm. they're so complex and so convoluted mm -hmm. uh, because there's so many self interest in different groups that mm -hmm. they all overlap and, and cause a real issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like the idea uh, that uh, the RWR guys come up with which is the, the 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 local problem which is hey deal 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 all these problems at the local issue and instead of trying to dealing dealing from them at let's say the federal level yeah uh, I really like that idea uh, I think it reduces a lot of stuff and uh, you know they probably you know people know this guy and so there's just a lot of things that if they got transferred back to uh, the locals and allowed them to manage it you know, maybe they'll manage it through the church instead of through the hospital. I, I don't know. Right. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Is there's there there are different ways to uh, to handle these problems. Not everything should be kind of thrust upon the state. And and if it is thrust upon the state at a federal level, let's let's try to figure out ways to reduce it down to the to the local levels so we can contain some of these costs and risk and so on and so on. That would be the only thing I could possibly come up with where I'd say. Hey, get, you know, let's let's talk to the complexity guys and, and 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 say, hey, how do we how do we kind of solve this particular issue? And because those guys think in terms of dynamics and interactions, and not just in you know in just the data itself. So uh, I would much rather come from that perspective right. on this on these particular issues than to sit there and say, hey, this is the right. Because at the end of the day, I don't really know what the the right way and wrong way is. Uh, I mean, I'd probably go along with kind of what it is i mean but at the end of the day it's like uh, i'll let the guys that are really involved with that and understand mm -hmm. complexity and the interactions i'll let them handle it you know what's what's, what's funny about that is uh, um i i started to look at that issue uh, you know um on that on that one particular front and i and I, it's a, a realization kind of dawned on me again it goes back to the seams work which is that um so this pro this problem uh is festered locally but the local administration for fear of covering their uh, rear ends, wants to sort of feign ignorance as to what they should really be doing to solve this problem, right? And then this problem just starts to catch fire because a narrative of a media uh, story gets built around it, and all of a sudden it gets, because it's getting media attention, um, you know, various uh, value systems across the world have incentives to, uh, you know, marginalize or um, demonize a particular country for you know their particular approach to doing things so then it gets to the federal level and then of course once the, it gets to the federal level it, a, a small problem literally becomes like this is the core issue of our time right and all of a sudden the overreaction to an incident 
becomes so uh, egregious that it's almost laughable because you can almost predict. Uh, and and we had incidents like this where there was a there was a there was a child that claimed that she was um, attacked for wearing her hijab uh, in, in Toronto, and and of course um, it turned out to be false. But before the police can investigate, everybody from every level of the government in Canada stood up, and because it became a global conversation that hey, you know, th- this is not what we're about, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, and of course. Um, uh, papers were written about it. Uh, newspapers went crazy about it, and 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 I started to realize I was like, this is this is why the localism angle is much more effective because what it does is it says, first of all, we we can scale and scope the problem exactly where it begins because there's no real problem that's massive in a sense unless there's an asteroid coming to the planet, and then we need the go- the global scale solution to it. Uh, the vast majority of other problems are almost always confined within a local area where there's a person involved doing something, so. What ends up happening here is that you, you, you get this, this, this idea that, hey, um, that problem is now on everybody's radar. And uh, because it's on everybody's radar, everybody must act. And there must be a moral uh, framework wrapped around it so that if you disagree with the act, you're um, automatically an immoral or unjust person. And, 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 you know, going back to skin in the game about all this stuff, we look at it and I say, okay, to, 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 the, to, to much of your answer, we really don't know what to do with this. But at least I have some sense of defining what the problem is. And I think from where I stand, the problem appears to be a conflict of values, right? Like you and I can value a specific thing a certain way. Like for me, uh, we can price the, the cost of the satellites that are, that are up in the orbit that, that give us GPS. But we don't really know the value of that because that GPS is translated into Uber Eats and to, to, to taxis and to UPS and to FedEx and to the ships and the containers and all that stuff that, that are tied to it. So can you really price and value that uh, at all? Because that, that, that value is sort of an emergent property of it. It's like you've given this new capability that sort of came along for free with the cost you associated with signing up those satellites. And now this value that's, that's baked into your society is sort of spreading out. Cool. What happens with the other side of things? Okay. We all want, and I'll give you this in Canada. Oh, we want free health care. Okay. Sounds good. What does that mean? Does that mean that everybody from uh, you know, a small town with like 100 people and to, to a city like Toronto or a city like uh, Vancouver, does that mean that if, if I want some particular uh, a service for myself uh, and I say it's free healthcare and I'm entitled to it and I need the very best doctor who can do that service, uh, does that mean that somebody uh, further away from the actual location of the hospital, that doctor, those uh, nurses, that, that medication, are they entitled to the same thing? If so, how are we going to pay for all this? Do we fly them out? Do we fly all the doctors and the, and the entire hospital staff out to get that particular service? And of course, I'm talking about the expanding and growing definition of, of uh, elective surgery that's become, quote unquote, a right. You see where this is going? Right. So, so there's these concepts that are sort of baking in and out, and you're starting to see it like, okay, uh, when these complexity issues aren't openly discussed, when skin in the game is not necessarily a part of it, so, so, so we start to get these cascading decisions that fail on multiple levels. And so to bring it back to your point, what if we told the bankers that here's how it's gonna happen. Every person who ever gets a bonus, that bonus is subject to a clawback for the next 15 years, regardless of how, when you retired or when you didn't retire. If you make decisions and you take leverage risks, whatever earnings you got, they're on the hook uh, for being clawed back. So please make sure that the people around you are not taking risks that you're gonna have to pay for down the road. And the CEOs and all the other people that are involved uh, I'm not saying don't pay them a, a fantastic salary. That's great. Do all that. But the question is, tie it to the 
to the objective function of the, of, of the firm to say, yes, we're paying you an exorbitant fee, but we can't just reward you for the short-term gains that you bring for us. What we need to do is to make sure that you don't set us up for failure so that, yes, you, gain, you bring us $100 million this quarter, but you don't set us up for a $5 billion loss five years from now. So would that be a way to sort of mitigate some of the problems that you've been discussing about how the financial incentives and the, and the derivatives markets are, are sort of lined up? It, it would be, but then you run into a size issue, right? Because at the end of the day, this is the deal. Uh, there's two things you're concerned about, especially when it, the, you're dealing with finance. Size and contamination, right? Does does one guy's balance sheet affect another guy's and then affect another guy's? And then and then all of a sudden everything becomes correlated one, and then you got real problems, right? Because mm. at the end of the day... If everybody's doing the same thing and, and making money the same way, like we saw in 07, 08, it mm. doesn't really matter if people are like, well, we're diversified. We do this and that. Yeah, well, if everybody's doing the same thing, then there's no diversification. So mm. it might be, and this is me talking out loud, I'm not saying that that's not a, a good idea. It might be better just to say, hey, listen, the, the banks are, should belong to the state, even though we don't want to say this is true. Mm -hmm. Maybe just eliminate that and, and, and then make everybody kind of a hedge fund and, you know, a version of a hedge fund or, or shrink the banking system down in some version or another. And hmm. then allocate and then have the, the, the people that want to take risk and blow themselves up and do whatever they want to do, as long as it doesn't contaminate the other groups and do whatever they're going to do, let it let it ride. My, my guess is I don't think you'll ever get a, around this idea of complexity contagion mm -hmm. and it blowing up the system on an, a regular basis i just i because invariably they all kind of converge and at some point something goes off it causes a cascading effect which triggers something else and then you got this you know and you know there's some stuff talked about self-organized criticality where mm -hmm. the system organizes itself to basically blow up uh, mm. or to cascade is that you know yeah there may be something to that I don't know. Like I said, mm. I think the complex complexity guys could really help us out with that stuff and start mm. to say, hey, it's probably best if the banks aren't private. Mm. They're more they're more geared like a public service because, you know, of, because we can manage risk. Is that any better? I don't know. Uh, at least we could do away with the bonuses. So the question is this. Uh, what is the difference between a bank and a hedge fund? How, do, how are they incentivized differently? How are they structured differently? Why would that solution that you just uh, earlier recommended, how would that con uh, reduce the contamination? Well, be, because, because the banks, because the hedge funds are smaller, the banks have the ability to, to borrow money from the federal government in some form or another and, and to take on assets and, and deposits and things of that nature. There's a, there's a natural, uh, maybe I'm wrong in making this assumption, there's a natural risk associated with a hedge fund of, hey, man, I know I'm gambling. With banks, you don't know that. So if you hear a bank go out or uh, if there's a run on the bank or anything along those lines, you would you would be like, well, your money doesn't really belong to you up to 250 right? I mean, mm -hmm. even though we've never seen that in, in, in recent times, that still could possibly exist. And so it's like, hey, your money's not, your, your money's not guaranteed. So there's this natural inclination to where mm -hmm. if you deposit your money, you kind of are always like that's that's risk that's totally riskless but mm. in reality it's not and with hedge funds you know that you know that it's not that that you're you're somewhat you're taking on the risk uh, for a particular return 
I just think that there needs to be a separation between the two and clearly defined in some version or another. And so, so that's a fascinating topic. So, so if you don't mind, how does a bank run happen? What is a bank run? To the average person who's never heard the term, what, what would you describe that to be? Oh, it just it basically means that the because because the banks take the money and they basically loan it out to other people, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea behind what they do, or they right. have it invested in in mortgages, or that that was kind of the initial idea. Uh, a bank run basically happens when somebody goes and tries to get all their money out, and their capital base shrinks below what they are, you know, because they don't they don't carry a hundred percent of the the assets on the books, right? They carry right. a percentage on the books, so. What what happens is is people if enough people go in and go hey give me all my money back mm. and th they look at them and they're like I don't have it it'd be right. like if you loan Tommy a hundred bucks and and then in two days go hey Tommy can I have the hundred bucks back and you know and he he's like well I don't got it you know I I've paid off bills and stuff with it and mm. and so it's the same thing it's when you go back and ask for for if you're a depositor if you go back and ask for money and you don't and and, and the money's not available because Somebody else has taken it because, right, right. because of the way a bank is structured. And so, so that's fascinating because I want to ask you a follow-up on that front. Uh, and again, like, excuse my complete and total utter ignorance on this front. But So I deposit $100 into the bank. That's great. That's understandable. How does Apple do this? Apple makes a billion dollars a second. Where are they depositing their money? How is their money handled? Do they have like a thousand banks that are just taking their funds? Like where? How do they protect themselves against this very problem at their so, scale? That that's where the investment banks come in. You know, they go to an investment bank and they're like, "Hey, what are the creative ways to uh, to try to move this money around so we can we can leverage the cash that we got coming in, okay. and we can also protect it." And so they'll do currency swaps or or you know, let's say they get they get money from China. You know, how do how do you get that money out of China so mm -hmm. they can actually use it or not China, but we'll, we'll just say China is probably a bad example. But let's say Japan. Okay. You know, how do they? You know how do they how do they get the, the they the, you know money that's in yen? What do they want to do with it? Do they want right. to convert it? Right. Do they want to turn it into cash? Do they not want to turn it into cash? Do they want to do some type of swap to adjust for it? Uh, hey, maybe they got some big projects coming up that they don't need it right now, but they need it in three months. They go to the investment bank. Hey, we got all this cash coming in. We need to we need to protect ourselves on the downside. And the bank will come back and do some type of straddle where they'll say, okay. We'll protect you on the downside, but we're also going to limit you on the upside. You good with that? Yeah. Protect us on 3% one way or another or some version of that. And mm -hmm. and off they go. And they're happy because they've got some downside protection, but they're capped on the upside. And mm -hmm. the bank is happy because they've, they've sold the product to Apple. And Apple has said, okay, uh, we're happy because we've got downside protection and we gave up some upside for it. That's, it. The whole, that's how markets work. It's got always... It. It's always trying to trade off uh, my exposure mm -hmm. uh, that I feel uncomfortable with if it's too large a relationship to what I do, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, to giving up some return for that or paying a a premium. No different insurance. Insur right. Insurance is very explicit. Hey, right. if I give you a hundred dollars a month for the next fifty years, and if I die at any time, uh, you guys give me you know two two hundred fifty grand or something like that. Right, right, right. Done. We'll put that trade on, you know, and they have all their actuaries that do all those calculations and, and they go, hey, this is what this thing is worth. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is I talked to an insurance guy one time and he said, yeah, it's even farther than that. Sometimes there's an insurance company that has low exposure in a particular area. So they mm -hmm. might run a deal on some insurance policy to get their exposure to that area up. 
So they may underprice something that you know should be worth, let's say, a hundred dollars a month. Maybe they'll be like, "Hey, you don't have to pay us a hundred dollars a month. Give us fifty dollars a month for the same for the same guarantee." And people are like, "Wait, what? Why would you do that?" And it's like because they're trying to get exposure uh, for one reason or another in that market. Okay. So what so kind that, of so, so is that a weird incentive for them? So let's say your insurance company A and insurance company B is making a killing because they're insuring for some reason. People who like to knit because they get knitter's elbow and they want some return on that. They want to right. insure their elbows. So they say, hey, it looks small, but they're making a profit off of it. We want to get in on there. How do we do? We undercut them. Is that what's happening? Yeah, some version of that. They want to get exposure to that area for one reason or another. You see it in the car industry, you know, in the car insurance. A guy was telling me about the car insurance. They'll do it on a very large scale. They'll be like, hey, we want to get exposure to, we want to get in the car insurance industry. You know, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. we think that it's, you know that that these these coming changes will reduce the number of accidents and da, 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 and there won't be as many fatal I don't know but mm. they've come up with some reason business reason that they want exposure right. and they go find it and 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 most of the time it's 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 pricing pressure of some version or another so right. um you know that 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 is kind of an, another thing but at the end of the day it gets back to what you were talking about Apple and that is People are always trying to figure out ways to protect themselves, whether right. or not through insurance, giving up return, right. uh, protection on the downside. We used to see it on Wall Street all the time. That's why I, mar- that's why I had a job was because a broker or a, uh, a fund, uh, institutional fund would come in and go, hey, listen, I want to buy a million shares of this. Would you start me on 10% right here and then you can have the other 900000 to – uh, trade it how you see fit. I'll pay you a commission, and uh, you got the order, so you can possibly leverage it into something else. That's uh, that's. So he's convex- giving you that job so that he can go focus on something else, while you oh. are incentivized to make a profit off that if you can. That if I can, that's exactly right. And guess what else happens? What's that? Uh, orders beget other orders. Right. So there, you know, if I have a, a share, if I have an order to buy a million shares of something. I can go around and talk to other uh, institutional accounts and go, hey, I got a million shares to buy. And, oh. and they may not give me, they might go, they may not say, oh, here's, I got, a hundred, I got a million for sale. Can we trade them? He might not do that. What he might do is go, hey, thanks for the information. Mm. I'm going to go off and uh, I'm going to sell uh, 200,000 shares of a stock totally unregulated to you because of, I'm going to pay for your information. Because at the end of the day, it's always about information. Now, that's right. how it was 20 years ago. Right. It's not like that so much anymore because of high-frequency trading, the algorithmic trading, and the ability to – and the rules, Sarbanes-Oxley, and all these rules that they've implemented that, that have, have changed it. But at the end of the day, it's always about trying to get information or an edge in the entire system. Uh, whether it not be Wall Street or or anything else, it's always about trying to get an edge. It's trying to get a business edge so you can leverage what you have into something more than what you what you have, i.e. convexity. It goes back to Nassim's comment about it'll take you five years to learn how to make money and twenty five years on how to how to protect it, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> it's 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 very difficult. And that's what it kind of get you know, just to kind of get back to the original uh, idea behind this. And that's why I don't trade anymore. Because mm. at the end of the day, there's just too many smart guys out there. there mm. Yeah, I know I am not uh, the smartest guy in the, and, and I am far. 
But what what does tell what where I do where I where I am comfortable and confident is I know not not to play in that arena. Hey, right. I knew not to play in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just physically couldn't take it. Right. But there are people that still play at that level, and at the right. end of the day, guess what? I'm okay with it. You don't have concussion syndrome, right? <laughs> all that stuff, you know, any anything that kind of came along with it. And the right. simple fact is, I probably couldn't have played at that level anyways. I had maxed out my ability at the collegiate level to to, to go on and play uh, anymore. And and, and and knowing your, you know, what does Sun Tzu say? Know yourself, know the enemy, near not fear the result of a thousand battles. If right. you know that and you know where you're at, you're 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 going to be totally fine. It's just, it's just knowing where you're going to get stung. And so, you know, at the end of the day, people have to figure out, hey, where can I go and what can I do to do what I want to do, but right. also protect my downside. And and if you can constantly be doing that and and and, and redoing that, you're you're aligning yourself to exactly what businesses do. Businesses do the same thing. They go down. Amazon didn't kind of dive into that whole Amazon networking thing, you know, because they were just like, hey, man, we're going to need a, a crap load of servers, you know. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, man, we could lease this stuff out. And it turned into a business. Right. Right. You know? right, right. By emerging properties. Yeah. They didn't know that. They, they right. weren't like they were just like, hey, and and, and now and then and, and, and what's the guy? Larry Ellison got on TV and said Larry Ellison gets on TV and says, oh, yeah, hey. We do we do a thousand times better job than them. Well, guess who's got the business? Amazon. Right, right, right. You know? right. Well, why? Cause, you know, they, even though even though uh, Oracle's built a better mousetrap, it's like, uh, you know, Amazon owns eighty percent of the, the you know that business now, and 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 that's a great example of it doesn't always map how you think it's going to map. A lot of times, it's just serendipity. Right. Right, right, right. So, so, so this goes back to our, our previous uh, conversation about this front. So here's the thing, right? Like, I, I just want to give um, because you know I'm getting a couple of questions here from some of the guys that I've been uh, chatting about this. So walk people through the following thing, right? So you're a person, you have a bank account, you make some money. Cool. You open a business, you're a small business, you have a small business bank account. There's money coming in, there's payments going out. Cool. At a certain point, there's a scale issue where like. Uh, the CFO of Apple is not going to have one bank account where he logs in and sees like a hundred billion dollars, right? There, there's obviously because what 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 the the curiosity appears to be here is where how is how is that happening? Like where at that scale when you when your company gets that big, what are they doing with it? Like where, where's where's all this money going? If if it's all being loaned, so if, if Apple says okay, I'm going to give my business to let's say J, uh, J P Morgan Chase or whoever the bank is that they do business with, right. that bank says okay, cool. We got Apple as a customer, and they're projecting to bring in $50 billion this year in sales. Uh, we're going to have this much b- uh, balance in our account. We're going to loan that out to our you know, various partners who are going to do various things with it. Where's all this money? That's what, we're, that's what people are asking. It's like, where, where is this all sitting down to? Like, is so, there a, so thing? What, yeah, so what happens is, so I saw a little bit of this on Wells Fargo okay. uh, because of the, the, the corporate stuff. And the answer is they basically allocated out. So let's say... Let's say, for example, they want to do a corporate buyback, and they're going right. to charge. Let's say they're going to charge two cents, two cent a share, right? And they're right. going to do uh, a two billion share buyback. They may allocate that to four or five different banks. Hey, okay. you got it this time. You got it next time. This guy, we're going to give, we're going to give a billion to them. We're going to give a billion to them, and, but they don't give it. They can only have it with one person. So there's some technical details, but the bottom line is they're going to allocate it out to individual people. They call it paying the bills. Okay. It's just like a bond deal. They do the same thing, right? Hey, mm-hmm. you know, J.P. Morgan gives us a lot of X, Y, Z. So we we love that relationship. 
We're going to pay a bill with them. We're going to give them the bond deal. We're going to let them, they're going to be the lead underwriter on this deal. So to answer that question is very simple. They allocate, they're all over the place. They, they're, they're doing, they're, 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 they have relationships with the, all the big banks. They have relationships with all the big brokerage firms because at the end of the day, there are certain brokerage firms that have certain specialties that they may like. They may like an analyst that writes on their particular stock and they're like, hey, we like that guy. They won't say this out loud, but they'll be like, ah, we'll try to take it with those, those guys. And they'll, they'll, they'll kind of, you know, do, you know, do this or do that based off of uh, the relationship because you got to remember relationships are two way streets and they're going to want somebody if they ever get jammed up to have a relationship somewhere down the road. And so they're going to, they're, they're they want to do business with JP Morgan and the, and the Morgan Stanley's of the world in, in the Goldman Sachs, because guess what? They may need them somewhere in the near future. They may need them at some point in the future and they may need their expertise for one reason or another. Right, so you don't so, want to burn bridges too soon because you have another uh, uh, game to play tomorrow. Exactly, especially the big guys. You know, the right. big guys. You know, the big guys are the, are, are, are what I call the worst, uh, in the sense of they're just going to have to do business. That's why sometimes you hear these guys. They're like, "Well, I got to do business with this guy," and even though they don't like him. Right. Why? Because they know that there's other services, other departments that do a ton of business in, in a particular area, let's say it's a swap area. Guys, guy walks over to a guy in the, in the, in the buyback group, goes, Hey man, you're going to get a, a crap load of business because we're doing a crap load of business over here and they're going to pay us through that way. Now people don't talk about that stuff, but that's always been my kind of version of how things work is, is the corporate guys are is connected to their, uh, to to the banks as the banks are connected to the corporate guys. Mm. It's a two, it's a two way street because you're always going to need guys to lay off risk or, or, or you want insight too. Just like you and I are talking, we want, we want, we want insight. We want like, Hey, how do you see the world? And all of a sudden you're like, geez, that guy has a unique perspective on how the world works. I'm going to talk to him some more because I never really thought about the world through the lens that he looks through. And so, right. That's if you're if you're a corporate guy, you're talking to everybody. I would. I mean, I would start to to narrow in on the guys that I, I talk to, you know, and, and, and it would be more like guys in our, our our world. But at the end of the day, guess what? I would want to talk to even guys that that I don't even necessarily agree with. Why? Because I want to know what they're thinking, too. Right. So I think that and, 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 and I've always said this, this where Nassim gives a, his greatest gift to me personally he, he, he showed me how to look through the world through different lenses. Mm. You know, don't look at the world only through this lens or that lens or, 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 or the return lens or the risk lens. He, he's like, look at through the world through all these different lenses and look at all these tools that you can use to try to make better decisions. Right. And, and that's what I've always gone back to. And in, 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 in an area where I'm absolutely obsessed with, which is uncertainty. You and me both. That's why we started this whole podcast. That's exactly right. All right, perfect. So while we're uh, uh, actually getting close up to the uh, three-hour barrier, I really appreciate your time. Uh, did you have any closing remarks that you want to just pass on to our listeners? No, I, I, not really, but I would just like to say thank you to you, all the people that are helping you do this. I, uh, I think it's great. Uh, I, think it's, I, I, I do think it's important that we all continue to share our process because when you read something – you might look at the and go, you want to take your own perspective. Right. And, 
somebody else might want to take their perspective. And that's one of the reasons why I like Twitter so much is because I'm getting all these different perspectives on how the world and the view people are looking through. And it's helping me make better decisions uh, in, in my life and, and with my kids or the people around me and so forth and so on. So uh, I just like to say thank you for doing this because I know that it takes a tremendous amount of time and energy. All the people that are helping you do this, uh, I just want to say thank you because I think it's important uh, for us to be talking about these items of interest and in, in trying to help uh, either my generation or the generation below us or even two or three generations that we don't even, weren't even aware of, uh, you know, do their thing and this hopefully might help them. So uh, I just want to say thanks for taking the time uh, to do this because I know, I know it's not easy. Well, thank you very much, Paul. We do appreciate your time for coming on, sharing with us your knowledge and your insight. And we look forward to future conversations. And you could find Paul on Twitter. I'll make sure that all the information is listed below. Uh, we'll catch you guys next week with more Risky Conversations. And have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation you'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation. As long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening, be anti-fragile, and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way. By saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Emerson Sadat signing off. Wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.